0: I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, very full of cherry coke bionic. Boy, that is such an edifying middle name. I know that will uh, my, really speak to people out there in our audience.
1: Well, it's a good thing it's a good thing we're doing an interview this 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 time
0: around because if I was actually talking much, uh-huh. I'd
1: be talking like this cuz I'm so full of caffeine
0: and sugar and then I'll be... Well, you can just nod off over there because we have two, not just one, but two tremendous guests this week.
1: Awesome.
0: We have, this is going to be a very unique show for our Futurians, and I think mm-hmm. people are going to find it incredibly instructive. We have a show uh, that I'm entitling An Inquiring Mind Seeks Answers to the State of the World. <laughs> and this was triggered uh, by a, a good associate of mine of many, many decades that I've known, a fellow Christian, uh, who received a book that, as you know, we think is extremely important. And the book. Is known as The New World Order and the Eugenics Wars, a Christian perspective by Andrew Hoffman. He's a gentleman who's been on our show before uh, and has the distinction, I guess the only one in seven years of Future Quake, to have a two part show about his book because there was so much information. Uh, it's a book that's offered at eugenicswars.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it's part of a two-book set that we offer right on the front of futurequake.com. It's a special mm-hmm. offering. So we're big believers in some of the findings. And so we have with us as our first guest, uh, Brother Andrew Hoffman, uh, who I'd like to welcome to the Future Quake Show.
2: Guys, thanks for having me back on. It's it's great to be back.
0: Well, it's been way too long to not have you on. And before we introduce our next guest, who's who's online right now, Um, I want to just clarify something that happened since you've last been on our show. Uh, You actually are part of a show on the Revelations Radio Network now. Aren't you? Isn't this a new development?
2: Uh, Yeah. Tim and I started up a a weekly, hopefully it'll stay weekly, news podcast, and it's just called Revelations Radio News. Uh, You can now get it on iTunes and uh, the Revelations Radio Network.
0: Okay, great. Well, I tell you what, if you can adjust your mic distance a little bit, we're almost getting a little hollowness. Can you hear that, Tom? Yeah, I can. It's like you're talking through a toilet paper roll.
2: There you go. Uh, that
0: might sound we'll a little Remove better the toilet there. paper roll. Don't, don't move the mic. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Andrew, thank you so much. And I want to thank you for joining us for this very special show we have. Uh, I'd also, and by the way, I want to recommend everybody listen to that show. I've already checked out one of your editions. Uh, and again, it's on Talk To, correct?
2: Uh, it is, yeah.
0: Okay, and it's a fantastic show. I really enjoyed listening to it very much. But, uh, we're gonna discuss, again, uh, your book, The New World Order and the Eugenics Wars, uh, based upon some feedback. It's some very, uh, um, interesting and thought-provoking feedback I got from our guest. Uh, again, a, a longtime friend of mine, a fellow Christian brother, uh, who, uh, uh reviewed the book that I sent him and sent back some questions, and I think we all agreed this would be worthwhile to discuss these questions on air, that may be some kind of questions that other readers of your book may have about the issues you talk about in your book. And so I would like to introduce uh, someone on our show who's going under the name of Doubting Thomas, uh, or D.T. for our show. So, D.T., I'd like to welcome you on the Future Quake Show.
3: Thank you. It's nice to be here today.
0: And uh, you hail from parts unknown, correct?
3: Uh, yes, in the Midwest.
0: Okay, great. Well, it's good to have you on, and uh, I'm glad to know that of the four of us, Andrew's the only one who's using his real name here, so uh, <laughs> he should be the only one getting the brunt of uh, the results of the show. How do we know show. it's his real name? Well, that's a How good question, know. too. I don't, it Could be an Illuminati
1: Jesuit front.
0: You just don't know. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out, Tom. <laughs> Thanks for your contribution today. Um, Brother DT, Brother uh, Thomas, could you share with us just a little bit about your background? That will help us to understand uh, a little bit of where you're coming from and where your walk is with the Lord and just even even some other things about you that, that might influence some of your questions that you have.
3: Sure. Okay. Um, I'm thinking that I may be a good representative of the typical future Quake listener, if there is such a thing. So. I uh, work for a Fortune 500 company in the Midwest, and I've that's been a exactly most
0: of our most of our listeners <laughs> are extremely uh, well well-healed, yeah, and yeah. well-to-do. So, I think if you have a job, I think that puts you in the rarefied air these okay. days in the future quake world. But mm-hmm. no, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Proceed. I've been a, Christ- been a Christian for about 20 years.
3: I've been associated as a, a friend and a fan of oh. Doctor Future for the last several years a uh, friend for many years and um, a fan for the last probably three three or four years of future Quake. and um, I have a, a college degree and uh, love the Bible I've been reading the Bible uh, pretty vigorously over the last 20 years and really want to develop my Christian worldview and I found the new world order and the eugenics Wars book was uh, really a, a book that kind of shook me up in some way and uh, the questions that I have here, I, I guess, would probably represent the kinds of questions that the typical reader would ask mm-hmm. if, uh, if he were not deeply versed in some of the, the regular topics that you have on Future Quake. So, as a relative newcomer to the Future Quake family, I'm probably not as fully, you know, educated as some of your your regular listeners are about some of the different topics that you've covered. So, as I read this book, it starts out on page one with a lot of difficult uh, to grasp and understand concepts. And that just left me with a lot of questions, questions mm-hmm. that if if this book is true, it radically changes my outlook on the world and how I see the news and how I walk with the Lord myself. And uh, if the book is not true, then we should debunk it, right? Because it would uh, potentially lead us into some uh, some world-changing ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you're, you're being very humble in what you're saying, and I would say your response as far as understanding the significance of what's in the book Actually shows your insight Rather than your limitations Because uh, it does confront you uh, You have to do something with it Either you know yes. it's, it's a bunch of hooey Or it's something that changes the way we As mainstream Christians Go about our life And our spiritual walk And uh, it, I just want to say a little bit For our listeners That uh, uh, Mr. Thomas here Is someone who I've known for decades And the reason why we met was he was seeking some Christian service in the workplace. It happened to be the same workplace I was at at the time. And the Lord brought us together because we were both seeking to to serve the Lord uh, through some Bible studies at work and things like that, and uh, uh, developed a very close relationship that has lasted uh, for the length of time. And uh, Mr. Thomas here has been a tremendous Christian witness over the course of my life. Uh, he has told me a keen, discerning word when I needed to hear it, uh, has been somewhat of a conscience for me in my Christian walk uh, and he's serious about his Christian faith and he's been consistent with that as a single young man in life and then uh, as a husband and a father and uh, raising a wonderful Christian family and puts a lot of his life into following Christ whether it's been his activities overseas that he's done in working with churches overseas or his work that he's done here uh, locally but uh, Brother Thomas is serious about serving the Lord, and what he's going to ask tonight are what I call the right questions. They are the actual questions that really need to be asked uh, by any uh, reader of Mr. Hoffman's book or by anybody in our audience about what they need to do in this world for Christ. So having said that, I'm excited to see how this is going to go forward, sort of experiment here. And what I want you to do, Brother Thomas... Is pr- proceed forward with some questions that you have available, and then I'm just going to let uh, turn the floor over to Andrew, let him answer some of this, and we'll just see how the discussion goes from there. So, unless there's any other words, I just uh, would like uh, Brother Thomas for you to take over from there.
3: Okay. Well, I guess my first question really is kind of at the higher level of you know what is what is the summary of this this book? Um, I've had several people ask me what was I reading and what did it say and even today, yet people ask me what was I going to be talking about on this interview tonight. And uh, I find it a little difficult to summarize in just a few short words. Um, So I would like to ask uh, the author, uh, Mr. Hoffman, if he would just kind of give us the elevator speech for what is the book about and why did he write it and why should our our, our listeners read it for themselves.
0: Hey, can I mention something real quick, Andrew, just to let you know as you, you tell this? I was out of town this weekend, and I went and visited another church out of state somewhere else, and I was walking through the offices of the church where the administration was, and on the financial administrator's desk I noticed a copy of the New World Order and Eugenics Wars uh. setting <laughs> out on their table. So I just thought I'd mention that's curious the kind of place where it ends up. So, Andrew, proceed ahead. Now, elevator uh, speech is basically when you got two minutes in the elevator with, with some higher up to make your pitch. You've got a few minutes of their time before they get to their floor to let them know the key nugget of what you're pitching to them. Isn't that right, uh, Thomas? That's correct. So,
2: okay, you're in the elevator, Andrew. <laughs> Tell us what your book's about. Sure. The, the book is basically about my own, uh, kind of journey of, of changing my worldview because this is not where I came from. Um, and even, you know, I think worldviews are are always getting tweaked here and there, but it's definitely, uh, much different than where I started out. And what I was trying to do was kind of explain, um, cohesively all the conspiracy stuff that I'd been researching on the internet, uh, listening to stuff like podcasts from Chris White and what have you. So there's all of that material trying and trying to organize it, um, look at it in the context of the bible and also um, just try to point out kind of what the real stuff is and what the bogus stuff is because when you go down the conspiracy um, kind of gateway there's there's a lot of garbage out down there too obviously and um as far as eugenics itself i think that is fairly simple to explain it's really just applied darwin darwinian evolution and that's I mean, it was Galton, or it was Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, that first used the term eugenics, and it was the idea of uh, human beings directing human directing evolution. And so, um, you know, the uh, the goal of it, and I think that you see it played out in our society, is to basically politically control people and even to biologically control people. So that's kind of the eugenics angle on it. And then as far as the political stuff, you know, secret societies and what have you, um, I felt that that represented a more accurate worldview of, you know, Satan is the, the prince of this world. If you go down the route of gaining political power, you end up ultimately whether you know it or not working for that uh pyramid hierarchical stru- structure with the uh, you know satan the the opposition to you know to god to to christians um at the top of it okay Good. Uh, so
0: le- okay let me just mention our listeners i um want to remind you again if you've if you've come in sort of late into the Future Quake show uh, in recent months uh, and you're not familiar with this, go back and check the archives of futurequake.com for our interviews with uh, Andrew Hoffman about his book. If you need to brush up on this and come back to this show, uh, or even better yet, get his book, The New World Order and Eugenics Wars, at eugenicswars.com uh, or at the front of futurequake.com because uh, we don't want to lose any of our listeners out there. So, uh, Thomas, just just proceed, please, with your comments.
3: Okay. So there's no doubt in my mind that this book is interesting, and uh, whether it's whether I am ready to believe all that I read in it or not, it's a very interesting topic. So I found myself at the end of the book saying, "Why should I recommend this book to someone else? How? What would I tell them about it? And what's the benefit of reading it?" And for me personally, I answered that question in saying, "This book altered my Christian worldview, or it fortified, edified my Christian worldview." Um, But that raised another question, which is. How important is it that we have a, a good Christian worldview, a balanced or correct Christian worldview? Could you maybe answer that for us, Andrew?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know the way we see the world um, impacts all of our lives. I, th- I think whether we consciously believe something or, or not, our actions are always based mm-hmm. on our beliefs, and you know our mm-hmm. actual beliefs might not ma- match up with what we actually with what we claim they are. Um, in many cases but i I think if you if you change the way you look at the world, that's going to um alter the way you live and for me what I found you know looking into this stuff, I realized my worldview had to a large extent to a much larger extent than I would have liked to uh have admitted was shaped by things like mass media or um you know the educational system and it was it really didn't match up very well with the biblical worldview. You know, if you look, uh, through the Bible and the, the Bible's view of, you know, whether it be political power or, you know, sin or, or what have you. And, um, so what I realized is that, you know, what's called kind of conspiracy stuff on the internet is, really more in line with um a biblical worldview. And so I, I tried to show that through the book and point to specific examples. I mean, whether it be, you know, um, idol worship at Bohemian Grove or, uh you know, just the idol worship of our entertainment culture. We are a very pagan nation worshiping false gods. And I think, you know, if there was an Old Testament prophet out there uh talking to America right now he would not be saying oh you guys are doing great you're a christian nation you're following god and what have you so i th- i think um you know the the perception versus the reality is is very different in that case
3: okay well a few minutes ago you said something about how uh many people are are unwittingly or are not not even aware of how they might be into the enemy's plans if they're for example pursuing wealth and power they are doing the enemy's work um just Mm -hmm. as much as someone who may be actively pursuing knowing the enemy and and, and knowingly doing his work um is that what you're sort of revealing in this in this book
2: yeah and and i think there's kind of two extremes there's the mainstream history approach uh with which what is what G.K. Chesterton calls the atheistic approach to history, where things just happen. You know, war breaks out, you've got the date for it, and what have you, but there's really no human cause um, for the effects that get played out. And then in the conspiracy realm, really everything has a human cause, or, you know, everything's planned, uh, acted out purposefully, and what have you. And, well, I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. I think it's a lot closer to, uh, you know, what we see in the world was planned and acted out purposefully rather than unintentionally and is just accidental and random. And I think, you know, if you think about your own personal life, things don't always turn out the way you plan, but almost everything that happens in your life is a result of intentional actions, whether it's by you or someone else. Mm -hmm.
0: If I can make a comment here real quick, and I direct, direct this to uh, to Thomas. Um, as you know, in Ephesians 5, it says uh, to be circumspect in the world. Mm-hmm. What do you think that, what does that mean to you? How, how do you become circumspect in the world?
3: I think it means to be inquiring and inquisitive. Uh, we've used the word over the years in our friendship of debunking. We've. Mm-hmm. talk about each other's skills at debunking things. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I'm using the name Doubting Thomas today, because I think um, Thomas is an example of someone who wanted to debunk something that he wasn't sure he could believe. But the moment he believed it, the moment he had evidence that was irrefutable evidence, he was totally on board, and he fell down and worshipped mm-hmm. um, Christ and, and recognized who he was. So that's the kind of doubt, I think it's healthy doubt that I want to have. I want to be just a little bit... Um, skeptical and and needing evidence and facts. Um, I don't want it to be like uh, excluding faith because there is a place that faith has to fill in where you don't have all the evidence Mm -hmm. and all the facts. But uh, I want to be quick to, once confronted with the facts, I want to be quick to believe.
0: Well, I I just brought this up related to your question of why do we need a more refined Christian worldview? Uh, Because I, I believe that we do. One, because I understand that to be the commandment of how we fulfill this command to be more circumspect, is I understand what that word means, at least as it was chosen by the uh, by the English translators. It means to look around you, to actually assess your situation and understand what's going on. Okay. And I, I would submit that that is a bigger task than sometimes what we would really assess, and that we live in a world, as uh, I'm sure you all are going to talk about in subsequent questions, of sophisticated deception. That as technology is increased, as new tools and knowledge have become available, there are sophisticated means of deceiving us on the reality of what's around us. And it has become more important now than ever that we go back and try to shield ourselves from what our senses are being impinged upon with the reality around us and go back to the Word of God. To be able to understand it because not only is it just a, uh, a subjective cerebral kind of change in, in our thought life and what goes on, but it actually changes the major choices we make in life. It's going to affect how we deal with the people in our neighborhood. It's going to affect our activism that we do. What do we choose to get behind and try to promote in society? What is it that we try to resist in society? Uh, the political candidates that we get behind to elect other movements in our society, uh, how we raise our children, what we teach them about the priorities in the world—these are the things that I think it's important to get a refined worldview. And and whether you make mistakes or not, or whether you you know uh, you go down a line and you find out later, well, that doesn't really hold water elsewhere. The pursuit itself, I think, is something that is a command from the Lord to do, is to understand as, as clearly as possible because it says to re- you know, redeem the times because they're evil. Uh, and I think that we need to understand the enemy, and as the Bible says, to test the spirits, and also to uh, cling fast to that which is good uh, that you find. Uh, and we certainly don't want to be caught in the, in the fact of inadvertently becoming a stumbling block uh, to others when we think we're trying to become a stepping stone because we don't realize the manipulation that happens because of a faulty worldview. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, uh, I would jump in there too and say. Another obvious command from Christ is that we would love our neighbor, and I, I think it helps us to love our neighbor better, particularly our lost neighbors, if we begin to recognize to, and the extent to which they may be deceived by the various um, deceiving forces in the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the faulty worldview that they may have bought into, just like any of us probably have faults in our worldview, and perhaps in the past we've had faultier worldviews. Uh, sometimes right. when we disagree with someone, we have difficulty loving them, but if we see them as deceived, then it makes it easier and we can love them more effectively.
0: Right, mm-hmm. and who creates that animosity? We know who the adversary is that creates artificial barriers between us. Because what, what, who was the, the first person to modify our worldview? It was Satan himself in the garden. He totally changed our worldview right off the bat, and that's how and entered into the world. He, he told Eve a completely different worldview and a cosmology of what would happen. Uh, if they disobeyed God and, and took his advice, and that change of worldview not only separated them from God, but it separated Adam and Eve from each other. And so I think that's right off the bat an example of what you're saying, uh, Thomas, is that it will have divisions between us that are artificial, and when we have artificial barriers, it is a sign of Satan working to cloud our minds. What are you gonna to say, Thomas?
1: Um, well, you know, one thing, one thing you mentioned about, uh, uh, you know, faulty worldviews. It it seems to be key. I, I mean, that's really the <laughs> that's really the key thing there that uh, that uh, Andrew's book takes. He mentioned a couple of things. He mentioned, uh, of course, Bohemian Grove. You know, it, it's interesting. I I've used this actually to great effect, uh, practically in in ministering to other people, just uh, in my normal day of you know work and meeting people and doing stuff. Um, and it it almost you know the whole. The whole thing you take away from that is, is you think that these people that you're voting for are, the stuff that they say is somewhat true, but then you find out that they don black outfits and go worship a giant stone owl. So, uh, that they go and engage in, in, in homosexual activities and get fall down drunk and slap each other on the back and call each other best friends behind closed doors. Um, that, as hard as it is to swallow, just to hear that, I mean, that's that's pretty easily provable from, uh, you know, just you know, Alex's Jones documentaries mm-hmm. and stuff. So, and and Christians Christians may perhaps more than others tend to buy that world view that it's, you know, it's an us and them struggle, and we have to put up the walls higher at church and, you know, support the correct political parties and and do all of this stuff, um, and it it it's just not. It just doesn't seem to hold water. Just based on that one thing because all these guys who are in power wanna do spiritual stuff. And it you know, comes right back of course to Ephesians six twelve, you know. Mm -hmm. We don't don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness of this age. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, we want to hear more from Thomas and Andrew on this, but if I could just add one more quick thing on this sort of fundamental question you're asking about worldview. I'll give you a case in point of how important it is, in, in, in my view. When Jesus began his ministry early, and he began to be very popular with people right off the bat, suddenly you see the Sadducees and the Pharisees show up. Now, they were two groups, they're sort of akin to like our Democrats and Republicans, our Communists and Capitalists. They had two different worldview ideologies. Uh, particularly in this world, also sort of a eternal cosmology differences too, but particularly in the way the world works and the worldview that they had. Both of those groups at different times tried to bring Jesus over to their side. To basically get him to endorse their worldview in front of everybody. And how Jesus responded Not only to them, but to his own disciples, he told the disciples to beware the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So, rather than taking one or the other, he showed that both of them had a faulty worldview that they were trying to co-opt him into. And as and as happens, they form the prototype, as we see in the pages of Scripture, of what um, Brother Andrew shows in his book. It happens in the world today. What what happens is these two. Different ideological groups that for public consumption seem to be at total odds with each other as a big struggle of duality worldviews. They go behind closed doors and they say that they will lose their position with their New World Order masters at Rome if they do not deal with this threat who will not buy in one of their two ideologies. And so these bitter enemies plot together to get rid of Jesus Christ and to kill him. So... The fact that he wouldn't buy into their worldview uh, was the fact that he exposed the whole fallacy of the differences mm-hmm. between them. And I think that whole picture shows sort of a backdrop of what has happened throughout history. Uh, does it not, Andrew?
2: Oh, I, I think it absolutely does. And I think uh in more recent times, this is the, you know, when the British Empire was kind of winding down, or at least the visible parts of it, the overt parts of it. Um, you know, they they figured out that if you can have kind of this left and right political system, keep them fighting with each other, but control both sides, and still get the, the quote-unquote compromises to be what you wanted in the first place, you can hide behind the scenes and not have to take the, the flack of being king or being president or what have you. You just sit behind the scenes and let kind of puppets take care of of all the, you know, all the angry people and the the angry peasants and what have you. So this is was kind of a survival mechanism and a pretty ingenious method for maintaining power. Uh, because in the U.S., for example, if um, if a single man tried to, you know, be a literal dictator and and say, oh, we're not having elections anymore and what have you, that would finally get people riled up enough to to do something about it, but when you pass the baton on to someone else and all the same policies get carried forward, even though the person had opposite rhetoric, people just accept it uh, to a large extent. I mean, different people are angry about the wars now than were angry about the wars under Bush, yet the wars you know, it's the same foreign policy. Same foreign policy, same economics. And you can, all the quote-unquote uh, electable candidates will always have very similar, uh, views on foreign policy and economics. You know, they'll, they'll pick social issues to fight over and, and have kind of WWE, uh, wrestling matches over for the, for public consumption. But in, in reality, it, in those two areas, if you did fundamentally disagree, which, uh, for example, Ron Paul does in both, are, both of those areas, you get called a kook, uh, you know, people say, oh, you, he can't be elected. Um, he's. And you're, you're kind of the laughing stock of the media because, of course, the media is controlled by the same entity. hmm.
0: hmm. Okay, Thomas?
3: Well, um, I have just, from my knowledge of the scriptures, I don't believe there's any place where the word worldview appears in the English Bible. I don't find it anywhere. Um, and so if someone were overhearing our talk, today. They might say, well, what place does this have for a, in the life of a growing Christian disciple? Why, why should I be concerned about something like a worldview? It sounds kind of political or whatever. Mm-hmm. I hope that the conversation over the last five minutes or more has clarified that really, I think it really is a part of our discipleship, and a part of our following Christ, a part of our loving our neighbor, a part of exposing the fruitless deeds of darkness and so forth. This is part of what we're called to do as Christians. And so this book will change your worldview. It's changing my worldview as I consider it. And um, I think that's the value in it. So maybe mm-hmm. I'm giving a little bit of an answer to my own question. But in mm-hmm. summary, that's kind of what I'm starting to conclude from this.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and it if- raises another question for me, though, which is uh, back to something Andrew said a minute ago about uh, you kind of portrayed two extreme perspectives. One is the world happens at random and it's just a process of random activities. And then the other extreme is everything is controlled and it's uh, got a master plan somewhere. And you said the reality is probably somewhere in between those two perspectives. I was raised um, in a mainline denomination where I heard occasionally something about how we shouldn't give the devil too much credit or we, we didn't mm-hmm. want to glorify the devil by talking too much about his powers and his, his conniving and his skills. How would you answer that kind of criticism?
2: Well, I I think that's a legitimate criticism if people are going down the avenue of uh blaming the devil for everything, you know, mm-hmm. oh, I sinned today therefore the devil made me do it. Yeah. What have you That that's a um, you know, theologic that's a that's a totally bogus argument. Um particularly, you know, where I think the devil has an influence, is in the world system, you know, the system of the world. And this is what, uh you know, if you read the Gospels, Jesus was contrasting the kingdom of heaven with the kingdoms of this world. And he operated in a way very much um, the opposite of what it was expected. You know, he was supposed to be this this Messiah, this political leader. And yet he he behaved totally the opposite of, of what you would expect a political leader to act like. You know, he was washing people's feet. He said, uh, if you if you want to be uh, first in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be the servant of all and what, what have you. So um, I think when you've got this, you know, I, I definitely think it is a danger to blame everything on Satan. Um, but at the same time, I, I think we've gone much too far the other direction where uh pretty much everything gets blamed on God. You know? <laughs> and where it's like, oh, you know, I guess um God wanted that to happen or or what have you. And I think you know, there there's I guess truth in that perspective. Um but if you take it to the kind of the Hyper-Calvinistic level of everything is is predetermined and, and what have you, and this is the best of all possible worlds because obviously a perfect God who couldn't create less than the best of all p- possible worlds. And and that argument, um, it it ends up you're you're justifying things that God clearly calls evil in in the Bible, and God gets angry at nations that worship idols, you know, and and so to say, oh well, God designed things like that. Um, and this is his plan being worked out, it's, it's not the, the full picture. Okay.
3: Well, so the reading of this book has moved my needle, so to speak, from the more random viewpoint to a mm-hmm. little bit farther on that continuum toward the more organized um, and systematic. you know, believing that there is a little bit more of a conspiracy activity in our world. So, for me to make that move of my own opinion, I need to have some justification for why I have taken that that new perspective. Now, I know that frequently on Future Quake we talk about Revelation 18 and that scripture about the, the conspiracies of the, the people in the world. Um, I think that scripture, for me, that seems to be applied more in the end time events and maybe not quite as much in today's current events. How would you how would you answer that?
2: what you know i think it it's very applicable to today um i think if you look at ownership of the fortune uh, especially the fortune 100 and how few hands if you really dig into it all that power is is centered in um and you know same thing with political organizations you know trilateral commission cfr and how these same groups keep producing people in administration after administration um i think it's it's clear that there is collusion going on between you know big business the merchants of the earth and the political leaders and there's also collusion going on with uh you know the the catholic church or big evangelical you know you're looking at Rick Perry working with uh you know dominionists um i don't know if i could call them christian groups but claiming to be christian groups and um you know working together for political ends so i i think and you know trafficking in the in the souls of men this is you know ownership over people's ideas over their over their world view um it's the same thing it's the reason advertising works you know no one thinks mm-hmm. that advertising works on them uh but of course advertising works on everybody so it it's for me, part of the, the process of, of writing the book was figuring out, hey, I've been deceived. You know, it's not just like, oh, yeah, it says other people that got deceived. No, I, mm-hmm. I have been deceived. And the, the mass media, it does have power. It does have an impact on the way we see the world. And um, we need to recognize that if we want to get back to a more kind of Bible-based view of, of our world, of our culture.
0: Can, can I make a just ask a question here to Thomas regarding Revelation 18? You were saying that you think that that really applies to something in the last days. Is there some evidence in that passage that suggests it just exists then, like like it begins at some particular date or anything? Does it? Do you see a start date in that passage to sh- suggest that something just pops up out of the blue then?
3: No, I guess the the reason I. Phrase it that way is because it just chronologically where that scripture falls in the sequence of what I read in Revelation, it seems like it's describing a time period somewhat later than today.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Now I'm not saying I disagree with the, the premise of collusion and conspiracy and so forth. I'm just saying right. I don't know if that particular verse is appropriately applied to today's world. Well, I can, yeah.
1: I can give you a I can give you a very interesting place where it seems like. There's a uh, you'd have to it's a it's more Bible reading than probably most people are used to, but the context is very clear if you read it closely. Uh, Ezekiel 26 through 28. Uh, most people, of course, know Ezekiel 28 is the big where it seems like bam like Ezekiel suddenly shifts gears and all of a sudden he's talking about about you know Halel El Ben uh who we call you know Satan, son of the morning. Um. If you go there and read from 26 and 27 you'll notice what's going on here is actually that's where the proclamation against Tyre starts right and if you pay pay close attention to the biblical idioms he says things about how the arabs comes and do business come and do, does business before him in the blood of bulls and rams and uh several other several other things like that uh in a close close reading what's actually going on there it becomes at least fairly clear to me that he's looking through he's looking through this passage and he's talking about both the earthly king of Tyre and looking through that earthly king of Tyre to the real power behind the throne mm-hmm. um so uh, uh you, you know you you see here this great merchant this merchant great merchant that sends all of these goods all over the place really being influenced by um you know one of the evil rulers that is mentioned that I, I believe is mentioned sort of uh, in you know at least an outline mm-hmm. form in Ephesians six.
0: Well, well, I would submit too that um, where I don't see a start date mentioned in in Revelation 18, I certainly see an end date mentioned. Uh, there's a definite end date because the context of that chapter is it's a time of final judgment for the great city Babylon. Yep. And so uh, one thing that we do know for sure is however long it existed, it's coming to a close. And I would say further evidence that it is something that has gone on for a long time is I believe the same thing could be said in Revelation 17 for the great whore Babylon. And in fact, um, most of the activities of where judgment happens in the book of Revelation are over iniquity that's been incurring over the entire history of mankind of which God says he will wreak final judgment, not over just the sins of seven years, but over the sins of the course of humanity. And the principalities and powers And particularly when it says And if people are not aware of that uh, If you can uh, you know, take a look at, at those verses It basically talks about in Revelation 18 of uh, The uh, the great kings of the earth And the great merchants of the earth And the actual Greek word means International merchants uh, from the Greek It says that, that, that basically they work together uh, To deceive the nations of the earth And it says that they conduct sorcery and that word sorcery is very interesting because it, 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 the word used is pharmakia uh, in the Greek. And it implies the use of artificial means, and in particularly in that means it means drugs. That's where we get our word pharmacy from. Drugs to do several things. One is, is it alters reality. It alters a reality or a worldview of the participants. And then it allows c- communion and manipulation of spirit, powerful spirit beings. That's been the the entire ancient history of sorcery is to do those things, alter the reality of the people who are subject to it, and to actually invoke the powers of the spirit world. And I would say basically that's the subject matter of Andrew's book is that the sorcery, basically it goes by a lot of different names in modern day. You can call it mind control. Uh, you can call it spellcasting, charming, whatever it is. It is a means of which defining the reality. And it says in that passage that through it the nations of the earth are deceived. And I believe that passage really explains what we're talking about. And we can document that activity uh, throughout recorded history. And God will judge it. He won't judge it not just for a few years of doing this, but from an entire history of mankind. Probably from the time of the tower, uh, since iniquity was institutionalized at that time.
3: So I think this gives me a little bit of an insight that I hadn't had before, because what you're saying is that scripture in Revelation 18 is describing the end point when Babylon is is um, is burning and the smoke is seen and so forth. That's the end of the period of uh, collusion and gaining great wealth. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying is, if that's the end point, it may have been going on for an indeterminate amount of time prior to that. Is that what you're saying?
0: Right. And I, w- I would, in fact, uh, this gets a little my philosophy of Revelation. I don't mean to veer us off here, but, but basically all the judgment I see in Revelation is over systematized uh, or institutionalized iniquity that's gone on, again, probably since the time of the Tower, shortly after the flood, where, where there in the plains of Shinar, we had an official alternative religion. Uh, that was actually devised to be a counter to the Judeo-Christian religion. And then we actually have an economic system that was set up in Babylon that was never dispersed and never changed and became a system of exploitation uh, and actually devoted to spirit powers, as it says. In fact, you go back and look at the ancient Babylonian history, it was dedicated that way, and it's never deviated from that. And what God says is that it is going to come to an end. Uh, that they are going to be judged uh, for what they're doing. But the key of that passage is it says the great merchants of the earth and the kings of the earth work together and they use this sorcery or these techniques, and it involved back in that day drugs, it used food, it used all sorts of things, and now we have a time of technology. So technology adds new techniques to their palette to alter our reality. We have electromagnetic sorcery. We have tools where they can use our auditory systems, the alpha waves on our TV, whatever it is. These are all things that can be doing the same thing. It's just the same old sorcery. It's mind control. It's charming. It's spellbinding. But what it does is it defines and alters reality of the people who are subject to it. And and what I understand is the Bible is admitting that this has gone on from day one, and of course, as I mentioned before, it began in the garden with the temptation of Satan, where he altered the worldview of Eve and then Adam, and it's gone on ever since then. And God one day will put a stop to it, but He warns us about this activity that's going on. Now, I'll just mention a little further something that uh, that uh, Andrew didn't mention from his book about uh, this this seductiveness. Uh, from the spirit world of powerful figures in our world. And Mm -hmm. I would agree with both of you that I think it's somewhere in the middle. You have people who are unwitting subjects to it, and then you have some that are witting subjects to it. Uh, Any intelligence agency, CIA, FBI, anybody, has a combination of witting and unwitting assets. They all do their work. And so uh, for the ones that are witting, a few examples I can give you are what Andrew mentions about when Jesus was tempted by Satan. And Satan offers him all of the kingdoms of the world uh, if he wants them because he says they're mine to give. And Jesus doesn't dispute that. He just refuses to accept them at that time. Um, and and Andrew says, I would be shocked to, to think that that would be the only time Satan would have made that offer to anybody. Uh, and if you think about the activities even in the book of Job, where you see Satan moving behind the scenes to to alter the experiences of poor old Job... Uh, in In that behalf, and later on, even in revelation, when the the letters to the seven churches which which I understand to be at the time of you know the late first century uh, happening at that time, he mentions two other institutions that were working in the church, one of them was the synagogue of Satan and the other one was the Nicolaitans who Jesus hated. Those were both two you know we don 't understand the details of them, but they were both some kind of institution that were spiritually working against the nature of the church, where where there was satanic infiltration in actual institutions. So those are just a few examples I might give from the Bible of where this activity is underway.
3: Okay. So as I look at this this conversation, I see from the scriptures, it's very clear that the Lord moves the nations according to his plan. We see that in the Old Testament and the prophecies that are given there. We see this scripture in uh, Romans 13 that talks about no authority is instituted except by God's command, and so I'm very comfortable with that part of my Christian worldview, which says I know God puts uh, nations in power, and He puts even my own uh, power structure in my family. He puts me in power and in charge of my family. He puts, um, you know, my boss and those kind of things. Um, that's God at work. And the Scripture supports that very clearly. We now we've just been talking about the enemy and what He's at work doing. And I guess I have historically believed that the enemy works more in the terms of individual temptations, one-on-one, or working with one person or a small group. It seems like from what I'm reading in this book, though, that there's, there's a supposition that the enemy is working at a much bigger scale, um, perhaps in imitation of God's work, too. Would we, Andrew, would you, bring, would you say that? Would you agree to, that uh, you believe that the enemy is also working to move nations and large organizations around?
2: Um, absolutely. And I think one thing as far as Romans 13, um, if you look at the progression, you know, from Romans 12 into Romans 13, it is really the, the heart of the gospel about, you know, doing good to those who do evil to you, you know, turning the, the other cheek and what have you. So it's, uh, you know, obviously lo- love your brother in Christ. Also, love your enemy, and even beyond that you 're supposed to actually respect the government so that 's the kind of the progression you see in Romans twelve going into romans thirteen so it 's not necess- it 's not really that oh the government is good in itself it 's that as Christians, we are supposed to you know live peaceably um, among all men we 're not supposed to be trying to overthrow the government we 're not supposed to be trying to um grab the reins of political power and use them for ourselves, these are something we're supposed to submit to. Now, what does that actually mean? Does that mean that uh, we obey everything the government says? Uh, Well, none of the apostles did. You know, they were all told to, to stop preaching the gospel. None of them did. Most of them died at the hands of the state for doing so. So whatever you know interpretation of Romans 13 we come up with we can't say that it's obey your government no matter what they tell you to do um and as as far as these institutions and nations being used by God i think that's that's absolutely the case however it's dangerous to to extrapolate from the old testament i think israel had a very specific purpose i think israel still has a specific purpose in in God's plan um but god was also was often you know moving amongst the nations in relationship to israel and this was you know protecting the the future savior jesus christ who he had had promised would come through the nation of israel so i think it's dangerous to to take that and say well god is mm-hmm. you know directing america the the way it's going i think if we look at old testament I think we get a little better idea, you know, basically what they're saying is, hey, destruction is coming, your nation is corrupt and worshipping idols, you're going to get destroyed, and I think that part is kind of a, you know, it's like physics, it's like you have political corruption, you have, uh, you know, worshipping idols, you turn away from the true God, your nation's going down, and I think that's the case whether we're talking Four thousand years ago or today and if we look at america right now that's the situation we're in so i i think it's uh god doesn't have to do something unnatural or against kind of the laws of the way the universe is set up to punish america We, we are uh you know heaping Destruction upon ourselves through the way through the direction that our our nation is heading, and I think that's kind of the case all over the world to to a large extent.
0: Uh, if I could add one other thought too, if I understand what you're saying, Thomas, about um, um, you know basically what's it all mean? Whether Satan is is using some of the some or all of the nations of the earth, or whether you know God is doing some of them. The, the key point is we know at the end of the Bible. God eventually will prevail, and it will all work out. So then the question comes, what value is it to us to be able to know this information on which black or white hat you know, a given institution or nation is wearing? And, and one thing I would submit to consider is in uh, the same Revelation 18 chapter, uh, talking to the Christians about the great city Babylon, where it presumes that they reside, and the command, this is one of the only commands you'll see in prophetic literature, where it says, "Come out of her, my children, and be not partakers of her sins." So there's a commandment for the children of God to come out of Babylon, under the presumption that they're somehow at least geographically immersed in it, uh, or maybe just per, you know uh, participating in some form or the other. Because I think Babylon is much more pervasive than a, than a land between the Tigris and Euphrates. It's really a mindset. But The Bible says recognize Babylon because you have to recognize it to know how to come out of it Right. and this command to not be partaking of her sins. So that would be an answer I would give on why we need to know and discern these kind of things. Uh, You know, I was thinking of another institution, even in our our Christian circles, the Pharisees. Uh, And and I would agree with you, uh, Thomas, that, you know, Satan can usually work through key individuals. I mean certainly uh, Judas Iscariot was a key individual. he was in a strategic p- position you know to do what he did when when Satan filled him. Um, but you look at the Pharisees I mean Jesus said the entire group of Pharisees that their father was the devil, and they worked in a collective fashion to go after Jesus. so I think we have you know all sorts of different views where these groups Satan can work in a collective as well as individuals. But but the key is is what I'm saying about our ability to recognize when it's so deceptive to us when when we can inadvertently even maybe be helping a Babylon system unknowingly and the Bible commands us to recognize it to be circumspect and then to get out of there and get away and certainly don't feed the beast.
3: Yeah, and then that that gets to one of my later questions that we'll we'll come to eventually about to what extent should we partake in just basic technologies and the mm. trade and the the merchandise of the world as Christians, if we're going to be out of Babylon how do we you know how do we do business here? How do we survive mm-hmm. without partaking in that it,
0: mm-hmm. to some yeah. hey Thomas, let me ask you, and I'll extend this to the other two gentlemen too how many How many sermons have you heard that were preached out of that passage about the the mandate for Christians to get out of Babylon and not be partakers of their sins? Have you heard very many? I've got a I don't for you. remember any. Yeah, I've got an even better one for you. Hosea eight four
1: says, "They set up kings, but not by me; they made princes, but I did not acknowledge them." Uh, so this is God chastising him. I for thought putting God
0: was supposed to have all
1: kings so automatically. Yeah. God so how many makes right? How many it. sermons have you heard on that one? You know, yeah. the point. The obviously the point is, is, is as uh, uh, Andrew really sort of uh, exegeted there rather well, is you know it's it's. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than just, oh, well, we take this verse. In fact, this is one of my pet peeves about Bible study in general, if I can sort of rant here for just, you know, two seconds. Uh, people miss context. They miss context regularly, and, uh, you know, uh, the book of Romans is no different. Um, you know, as as Andrew sort of really pointed out, the context there um, shows us some clear you know something—a uh, much clearer picture about what's going on there—and really is able to harmonize. You know, uh, Romans there along with the. You know, like what I what I said earlier here in Hosea, they set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not. Uh, I did not acknowledge them. In fact, I'm going to probably say that a bunch tonight. Okay. I just might <laughs> throw that in there. So.
0: Should we just sample it so I can hit a button here on the board and <laughs> they made, made up, come They up? set
1: up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them.
0: Okay. all right
3: okay so a related question i have then is this advancement of human uh, or human human advancement over the centuries um it has come with a, no, a number of innovative inventions and breakthroughs in science and so forth um technology is this something that we would believe is or that that, that andrew would suggest is inspired by evil or inspired by god or both or neither how would you answer that
0: Okay. Well, Andrew, well, before you answer that, I just want to say this is a this is a touchy issue for Brother Thomas and myself because we're both engineers. Fire profession. protection inherently we, evil. We we spent our careers trying to learn science and harness it for the betterment of mankind, and so we can make the world a better place. So yeah, Just you know that's our just know that that's our mindset going into this, Andrew.
3: If you tell us that we need to become Amish, then, you know, we might we might lose a few listeners here.
0: <laughs> well, we, we might get bummed out.
2: All right. Well, first of all, um, I want to clarify that I don't believe there is human advancement. In other words, I don't think humanity as a whole is progressing. I think human nature stays the same. Um, I think two things are moving forward. Now, technology is moving forward and, and becoming, you know, more and more advanced. Um, and also I believe that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is moving forward. You know, the, the mustard seed analogy, you know, the leaven and the loaf and what, what have you. So I think those two, but as far as human nature, I don't think we're becoming, um, superior to humans that, that were around 3000 years ago. We might be able to use a search engine, but I, I don't think, um, you know fundamentally we're superior to them now technology i think is um, it's certainly a complicated issue i don't believe that technology is neutral i I hear that argument a lot. oh, it can be good for you for good or evil. Um, I think that when you um, create the technology let's say necessary to create an atomic bomb um that's not a neutral moral action. You are uh, exposing the world basically to a potential catastrophe because of what you have done. So as an engineer, I think you have to ask yourself, um, what am I doing? How not only could I use this technology, but how could it be used by others? And I think in your, your Christian walk, you have to to really examine that and, um, I, I don't think there's a universal solution like, okay, let's stick with the horse and buggies. Uh, you know, let's go with the Unabomber manifesto theory of technology's gonna, uh, wipe everything out, so you gotta wipe technology out before it, it kills the rest of us. Um but at the same time, I, I don't think that you can just say, oh, I'm a scientist, so, you know if someone was going to come up with this idea or there's good possible uses for it, therefore, I am morally justified in creating it. I think uh you have to kind of examine as as much as is within your power what the implications are and whether something needs to be created or not. I think there's lots of technological advancements out there that should have been left alone, and I think um from a From the perspective of my book also i I made the argument that there's um, a spiritual element to these things that there are forces behind the scenes, not just human you know human creativity and what have you that are driving these technological advances and I think it's driving them uh you know if you listen to rest is it's they're being driven to create an a weapon system that can Attack Jesus Christ when he comes back, and as out there as that sounds, I think there's there's real uh, a spiritual element that that is the ultimate goal, whether that's fifty years from now, you know five years from now, five hundred or five thousand years from now, I think there is an element that's that's trying to build towards that and is trying to use technology as a weapon against God I think when you look at the big brother technologies this is um you know kind of spiritual forces using technology because they're not omniscient and omnipresent the way god is so they're they're using technology to gather all that information in um for purposes probably well beyond what the people who are actually you know turning the nuts and bolts of those systems know about
3: so let's let's explore an example a little bit deeper on that then If I were an engineer working on, let's say, digital technology and I had a breakthrough that enabled me to invent some years ago a digital camera, which, by the way, I didn't personally, but just as an example, um, would you say it would be important for the Christian in that situation to deeply reflect on his invention and where it came from and where it could go eventually and maybe to hold back on his creative applications?
2: Yeah, I, I I definitely think so. I think that's exactly what I'm saying now in the digital camera example. Um I tried to pick an
3: example that would appear
2: neutral. Right. Yeah, because you know, obviously you can take uh pictures of wholesome wonderful things and you can take pictures of of sinful or disgusting things, but um but as far as that technology itself in that particular case um Yes, you're. You know, the the real invention was the camera, I guess. The digital camera is kind of a, a modification of it. Where if you're if you're looking at something like a uh, weapon system or what have you, I think that's more along the lines of of what I'm saying. You know, you got to raise some serious questions about should I be involved in this? Because I'm sure there were there were Christians involved in the Manhattan Project. And uh, many of them probably believed they were doing the right thing. Many of them, I I guess, at the root of the Manhattan Project is they didn't know what the ultimate end was. They just knew what their particular role was in in that, um, you know, kind of very segmented system there.
0: If I can make a comment on this, I I think a constructive way for us to look at getting something useful out of this. Reflection on technology and the spiritual implications is that Christians who do have some capability in the sciences need to serve a function for the body and for the world by being able to reflect, with, with the Holy Spirit's help, on where they will take us. How can they be used in a way that would be harmful for us spiritually and in other ways and be able to instruct the rest of the body on what's going on? And that is almost in essence a way of getting out of Babylon is exposing it for what it is when it takes over. I, th- I think, you know, as an engineer and a scientist and an inventor myself, I think what, what technology does is that it's an accelerant and it's an amplifier. It accelerates the progress of, of humanity in whatever their end state is until the Lord returns. In other words, whatever the extent of our deprivation, uh our extent of rebellion from God, any of these kind of things we get down to the bottom before God intervenes, it makes it go faster. And I think we all can picture that. Uh, you know, the Internet's been used for a whole lot of great things, but it also, uh you know, this show wouldn't be possible without it. But it also allows... Uh, terrible things to happen, so we can almost see a polarization of of good uh, and godly things uh, get more extreme, and we see negative sinful things get more extreme that 's accelerated due to these tools. It also amplifies it. Uh, it used to be that a very evil tyrant had a club, and he can only knock so many people dead now that he has a gun or a bomb. He can okay. do that on a much larger scale, so he amplifies. The, the evils of it, okay? Now, it can also amplify good. A lot of these tools can dig wells that can help people in Africa have water that never had water. So, uh, I, although I think the technology, it's like a tool. It The tool is neutral. Are you going to use the hammer to build a barn? or are you going to use the hammer to hit people in the head? And I think a, a useful thing that Christian technologists can do is recognize that Satan likes to co-opt technologies, he may be behind some of them, or he may just co-opt them for his purpose. And and we, we serve a purpose for humanity and for the public is being able to expose when that possibility exists and to do what we can to veer it in a positive direction itself. So, there are some things that are going on that are particularly dangerous, like the transhumanism movement, because now that, that mankind is now building the building blocks of DNA himself, and as was just mentioned in the news recently – uh, we found out that that uh, even our government and universities went behind the back of the public, went around their laws, and have creatures they've created that are half-human, that they've kept for, I think, a year and a half or longer. Um, now what? that we find they do this, the kind of thing, Whoa. we I recognize, and then that. in the transhumanism movement, they're basically creating a religion around it where <clears throat> they blatantly say, we have now become gods, and we can become gods because of this. <clears throat> So that's an easy one to see that these tools, although it said that it will cause solutions for our diseases and Alzheimer's and all these other kind of things and uh, with these stem cells and and other genetic work, that's an easy one to see that the the work is already there to create a a religion of rebellion against God or substitution for him. So uh, to me, I think that's the useful way to uh, recognize what role technology has in society.
3: So in keeping with this series of questions on the eugenics movement, um, I'm still questioning if if Andrew is saying he believes that that some of the early inventions, if we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, are, are you suggesting that some of the early breakthroughs might have been um, inspired by the enemy rather than by God, or are you taking a position on that?
2: Well, I think... Um if If you look and I don't want to get into a whole debate on uh, the Book of Enoch or what have you, but basically uh Enoch talks about how these different fallen angels were showing you know men how to uh, work with metals and and create weapons and what have you and um there's certain things, especially if you look at you know the Great Pyramid being one of the earliest pyramids built so you 've got this massive feat of um engineering that kind of came from nowhere it wasn 't the pinnacle of the civilization it it was you know it wasn 't like oh there 's lots of these kind of lousy little pyramids, and then eventually you get to the great pyramid it kind of it 's one of the it 's one of the earliest ones that they 've found and um I think that there is um, some angelic you know fallen angelic uh agenda behind that and as far as i th- i think you know whether god would it would inspire uh people to create different things i think god obviously made us with a, a very creative spirit um at the same time i i don't see god you know kind of commanding a technological society i think this is uh, you know, human motivation, and I, I also think there's there's a spiritual element to it. Um, but I I don't think God said, okay, I'm going to create man. Uh, the creation is good, but it'll be really good once they figure out how to make a TV. <laughs> um, so I I I don't think it's it's something where I don't think it, to some extent it it matters to God whether we come up with all these technological advances or not in the sense that it doesn't get us closer to God, and in many cases I think it gets us further away. The the better we are at distracting and entertaining ourselves, the better we get at ignoring God, and I think that's what we see in our society today.
0: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a couple things we see in in hindsight... Um, Part of what the Industrial Age has done over time is, is separate us from the earth and has put us in cities. And Scripture clearly gives indications that while, you know, I'm a little bit of a city boy myself, that city living like this has had a negative impact on humanity. Uh, in fact, God commanded them to replenish the earth after the flood. And the first act of rebellion was for them to stop in a plain of Shinar and build a city. And if you look in Scripture, when these kind of cities pop up, particularly of old, you know, and Sodom and Gomorrah of, or, or of old, uh, Jericho and others, they quickly descend to the lowest common denominator in the society, and that's when you get mob psychology that takes over. And you also can find one individual that's keenly placed that Satan can manipulate who can actually be the rudder of a ship in a community like this. Uh, whether it's a Nimrod or whether it's someone that using uh, mass media or other means by which to provoke mobs. Uh, you go out and you, you spread... You know, you, you would see the Pharisees that would go follow around uh, Paul in these cities, and they would just spread some rumors in the mob, and then suddenly they want to stone Paul. And it reminds me of the Internet rumors that we see that go on the Internet when people try to bring them down. It's the same kind of mindset. So I think anything that puts mankind in a position of having huge influence over other people makes him susceptible to his fallen state and to magnify his impact on other people. Uh, and so I guess I would say as a rule of thumb, if you're looking at a new technology, you might want to ask yourself, would this be of any utility in Christ's millennial kingdom? <laughs> because Christ's millennial kingdom is, is sort of the the, the ideal state of community living that christ envisioned all along when he comes back and fulfills his promise to reign on earth for a thousand years uh you know the descriptions we have are pretty scant but to me it almost sounds like we're living like uh you know granola eating rocky mountain high hippies uh building you know our our, yeah you know building our our little houses you know off the wood off the land and our own vineyards and people are having a sense of local village community
1: what if i want to do that man well
2: well and if I could jump in, um, I was just reading some, as I want to do some Jockey Lul stuff, and, and he interprets the city in, in the Bible as man's uh, replacement for God. And so that's why it's got a, such a negative view of the city in, in the Bible, is because the city provides everything for man so that he doesn't have to rely on God everything is is found uh you know all his physical needs are provided for you know entertainment what have you so there's no reliance on god because man has figured it all out himself and so that's it's kind of the the rebellion um aspect to it
3: we see that when jesus had time uh or he made time i should say he went to a quiet place by himself you don't see uh him going off to you know to meditate in the middle of the crowd he's He's got to get away. And when we get away and we quiet our hearts and we listen, we find the Lord will speak to us. And the more busy and occupied we are, the less we're open to his speaking to us. Hmm. Yes,
2: <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's definitely the case. Absolutely, and, and I don't want to take it too far because uh, Jesus also then went back to the people. So you know where the the crowds gathered, and what have you, so it's not a case of where I think we would be justified in you know going the Amish route and totally withdrawing from society and you know go, <laughs> going and hiding in the cabin in the woods somewhere um because we are called to be salt and light, so you know we're supposed to be in the world, not of it, and it, all of that's you know very difficult questions um Where do you draw the line but yeah I definitely think there is something very wholesome in recognizing your need for God, recognizing that you know it's a big world out there, it's a big universe out there, you're just a tiny part of it, and that that God is present, and you know you can pray to god god is is there and and will actually listen to your prayers.
0: well, you know, I'm beginning to appreciate more and more the concept of decentralization. As a way to manage until the Lord comes and we're glorified in the restoration of all things, to be able to manage the fallen state that we all live in. It seems like when we collectively get together in fallen state, and this is without the inspiration of the Spirit, we, we we find that um it c- it can magnify the kind of messes we can get ourselves into. And so I find that societies that are more decentralized and rural sometimes at least tamp down the full measure of the, the problems that they get into, and sometimes even churches. I think more decentralized church structures uh, can actually be shown to be for the better. They're not foolproof. You can end up with little small tyrants in small communities, but you don't get the guys like the Hitlers that are raised up. And so anything that I think can be used as a tool for one person to manipulate over large groups of people, we have to be wary of. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a role, but we as, as hopefully enlightened Christians and discerning Christians need to warn people in our society and the rest of the people in our brethren the dangers that these particular tools are for, man, for manipulation of other people. And, you know, like, like you mentioned, Brother Thomas, you know, Satan likes to work through individuals. Well, if he gets the what who's the rudder of a ship, of an institution, he's in essence moving the institution.
3: Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that is a good point. Well, so maybe that brings us to a little bit of a a new direction I could take with my next question. It has to do with uh, the events of 9-11, which is certainly very near to our our anniversary now, and as well as other big events like Pearl Harbor and big wars, and you mentioned Hitler, and we could take World War II or even much further back. Those kind of events seem to be trigger points that create greater organization, as you were talking about, the opposite of decentralization. and. I guess I have my question for Andrew then is, do you believe that these kind of events were massively planned and orchestrated at a high level from the very beginning, or did they just kind of happen because of that rudder person or person that the enemy influenced, and then one thing piled upon another and piled upon another, and then he co-opted it for his
2: end? Okay. Um, well, my my view on nine eleven, if if you're looking for... How I think it was actually carried out, I think it was a relatively small group of people that knew kind of the whole story, and I think the rest of it is uh was people that knew their own their own particular role. I think if you look at uh the war games um, you know able danger, all this data gathering on potential terrorists, and then of course you know it 's all the de- uh, destroyed. It's not put in into the 9/11 Commission report and what have you. Uh, you know, evidence that they knew about all these quote unquote hijackers before 9/11. Um, I think that it's a it's a small group that actually knew that the whole story. Um, but obviously, there's quite a few people involved, and it's uh, you know it's computer systems. Uh, if you look into stuff about P-TECH and how this uh, so-called risk management software um, had access to all these different computer systems at the time, like the FAA and things like that, and how, you know, from one central location, you could kind of manipulate these different systems. Um, I think that's as far as figuring out nuts and bolts of how it was actually pulled off. Now, I think on one level that's not as important as realizing the actual events of 9-11 are far, far different than what's portrayed on, on television that, you know, it was Osama bin Laden hiding in a, in a, a cave somewhere in Afghanistan. And he basically masterminded these attacks, um, you know, with Muhammad Adah and and what have you. And, and they did it for Allah and for the sake of, of Islam. And it's important to realize that the propaganda version of reality is is always far different than reality. And it's because of the nature of propaganda, it's because of the nature of mass media. Even if you had a totally innocu- innocuous event where every news station was trying to tell the truth, they couldn't, just because of the, the nature of... Um, the nature of mass media itself and propaganda. And that's kind of where my, my research has gone in the time since I wrote this this uh, first book. But I think if I ask you about 9-11, well, let, let me just do it. Uh, Thomas, when I say 9-11, what's the, what are the first images that pop into your mind?
3: Well, I think I probably speak for everybody in saying it probably is the images of the two towers burning and the smoke coming up. And then okay. trail immediately behind that of what you just said a minute ago, that it's portrayed as um,
2: caused by Islamo-fascists trying to attack America. Right. You see, and I, I think people, um, if you ask them about 9-11, they, they see the Twin Towers burning or they see the planes crashing into them and then they, they think of the towers collapsing. And if you think about 9-11 on television, uh, particularly in the time, in the hours... You know, immediately following 9/11 and thereafter, they show those images over and over again: planes crashing into buildings, buildings collapsing, planes crashing into buildings, buildings collapsing. And and what that's doing is that's tying together those two events in your mind, so that you have a cause and effect relationship. Now, the fact that there were, you know, hours in between those events, what this one that got hit second fell down first, and what what have you, all these problems, not to mention Building Seven. 47 stories that wasn't hit by an airplane and fell down in, in even more pancake fashion than the first two buildings. Um, That's kind of gets pushed aside because in your mind, nine eleven equals plane crashing into buildings, buildings falling down and right. it's, it's, it's turning it into symbols and it's turning it into, and then it's attaching those symbols onto all this kind of fear and hatred of, of other cultures, uh, Muslims, you know, they're, uh, it's a false religion, they're, they're against Christianity and what, what have you, and they're all out to get you. It's the, it's making you see another group of people as less human than yourself. And that's, that's yeah. at the heart of war propaganda. And I think, uh, um, if you can try to detach from that, if you can just investigate 9-11 on your own and say, Okay, let's look at Building 7. Let's look at the the cold, hard data of it. Is the government telling me the truth about what happened? Is, uh, you know, is mainstream television telling me the truth? I, I honestly believe that there's no way to come to a different conclusion other than they're lying to us. And yes, that has huge implications, but it's not the job of, you know, people like me who are saying they're lying to us. To explain all of their motivations and what have you, i you know I can take a stab at it, but you know rationally it, are they lying to us? Yes, then what else am I being lied to about? yeah, there's probably a lot of other stuff i'm being lied to about, and that's how my own you know kind of journey into all this stuff started uh, was with nine eleven, and yet it's emotionally painful to to acknowledge that, and I, and I know people who, they know all the conspiracy stuff, but they're still like, 9-11, come on, you know, that's, mm-hmm. there's evidence on both sides of what have you, and there's there's really overwhelming evidence compared to other events, uh, you know, like Pearl Harbor is still kind of debatable, how much was known, what, when was it known, what have you, but 9-11, it, to me, the the evidence really is overwhelming mm-hmm. that the official story is a lie.
0: Can, can I make a couple of comments here, uh, just from my own perspective? Because I was someone who sort of, uh, even doing the show, I was hesitant to accept that for a long time, even though I had some Christian brothers who I had learned a lot from spiritually who were pointing that out to me as being obvious. And it took me a long time to let go of my worldview to accept what my eyes were seeing. But, but, and I think it's very hard, Thomas, for even for our listeners who might be skeptics like yourself listening here, to accept something this profound in a you know even a half hour of our time discussing it or or a few hours the first of all what you have to do on anything like this whether it's 911 or anything else big in our society life is is somebody has to make a commitment to say I'm going to invest part of my time in my life to find the truth and find where it is and then have the patience to go look it out and pray about it and come to conclusions and what helped me on this issue to finally come to understand because see I worked for the military. I was a very patriotic person, I understood who our enemies were, I was ready to go into these wars uh, when it happened. But then I started looking to history. And history helped me to understand and what it did was it helped me to ask the right questions. And I think that is what this whole discussion we're having in this show is about in trying to understand Worldview and a clearer worldview that's more biblically defendable rather than what we're immersed in here is that we're told to ask the wrong questions. We mm-hmm. do not ask the right questions to understand what's really going on and so when I started looking at history and started looking at things like the Reichstag fire, the stuff we know for sure where where Hitler actually set up somebody of a hated religious group that people were easy to get mad at. They took one of them, took basically a goon, who I understand he was of men, you know, limited mental faculty, set him up and blamed him for setting a fire. And what happened as a result, they were not only able to demonize those people as the enemies of the people, but they immediately suspended their constitutional rights. They put in something very akin to the to the Patriot Act throughout Germany. And it was an ability for Hitler to accumulate power and not be restricted by the Reichstag, and by the other limitations are there. When you see something like uh, Vietnam, and now it's been confirmed in recent years with the declassified NSA reports that the Gulf of Tonkin, which led to our Vietnam War, was actually a total fabrication, that there was not an attack by North Vietnamese on our ships. We were told that it was. We don't know for sure how much... Lyndon Johnson was told or if he was in on it. He's a pretty shady character in a lot of things, so that's the part we don't know is how much he knew. But regardless, it was used as justification when he went to Congress to be giving police action without a state of war declared for him to go into war with Vietnam. And as you look at these over and over again, you have the main that was attacked. The, the, the main that the, supposedly the Spanish blew up, which gave us an opportunity right. to conquer some additional countries in Philippines and Puerto Rico and give us the raw materials that our industrialists wanted uh, for our country, but we had an excuse. And it actually turned out many, many years later, FDR wrote a letter to Spain, to the king of Spain, acknowledging that that was all made up, that we knew that they didn't blow it up. You left yeah.
1: out my – I'm sorry, you're riffing, but you left out my favorite one. Of all time, of uh, false flag events influencing Christian worldviews, and that's of course Nero burning down Rome and blaming it on the Christians. Yeah, that was sort of a
0: tough one for us as Christians. Yeah,
1: it's uh, you know, but but we tend to overlook that now because we go, oh, the government's good. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. we we got to vote for our party and get our people. Yeah, Yeah, they they wouldn't lie to us, even though they did it in the main, world possibly World War II. 64, uh, 67, um, they planted hundreds of bombs in uh, in Italy, used people there, in Turkey. These are things we know three for different, sure happened. Yeah, yeah, three, different, three different coups yeah. in 14 years, yeah. uh, put fi- 50,000 people on an island to starve to death in 54, yeah. in Greece. Um, right. You know, on and on and on. All of these things that were done, uh, uh, well, gosh, they made they made hit squads in South America. Yeah and uh uh used used a, a CIA intelligence and uh, radio uh, radio transmission stuff our technology uh-huh. based in Panama. Uh, to do all that stuff, they run a school called the School of the Americas, now called the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security, where they go and they try to be killers for their for their governments. Right. Uh, they train people in Kansas to do the same thing, but in mm-hmm. in uh, uh, Filipino and Tagalog. But you started down
0: this path, and all Sorry. these things start. I falling I can keep going, You, you think I'm just starting? <laughs> the key, the, the, the key, though. I need to go walk around the block. Is when you see this pattern, and you see now we know history tells us what their motives were. And it's usually consistent motives of there's financial rewards for economic partners for governments, there are control issues where civil rights can be suspended in all these countries, it consolidates power, and then when we go back and look at nine one one and I know we you know we could spend excess time here on nine one one but but it is important, Thomas, that you bring it up because this is the thing that really caused a light to come on on a lot of younger Christians' minds to start asking questions, so you know even as an engineer. Who specialized in looking at aircraft crash investigations with fire. That was my, my area. In fact, I, you know, testify in court, uh, to this kind of stuff. And so, you know, I have, I have my own ideas about what happened in those buildings when they burn. I don't even get into what happened to cause the buildings to fall because it's totally unnecessary. We, we have a case where we can document where NORAD turned off all of the, uh, observation, the only time in the history of NORAD, of what was going on in the air, just for the hours of now on one six hours,
1: and changed changed the routing procedure of who was in charge for one time in six hours, one time in its
0: 54-year history. All of the planes, all the military You guys planes. are
1: engineers. What's the percentage of well, that? All of them. I, right. I
0: guess that's my department. all of the military planes <laughs> on the eastern seaboard, except for a handful, were sent away from the eastern seaboard to protect it. Uh, we we have uh, the man who owns the buildings takes out a multi-billion-dollar insurance policy. Literally just before the event happens. And I could go on and on and on, but the math- mathematician comes out to you and says, What's the odds that all of these things could happen? And what was that's, the. That's, that's well, not my question. My question is a little different than that. My question is, How in the world
3: could someone possibly coordinate such a complex deception and expect it to stay plausible and believable and hidden as well as it okay. has?
0: Well, let, let me answer that. How did somebody pull off the Manhattan Project that went on for many, many, many years? Had many thousands of people involved. Four hundred thousand, and it never got out. It never got out and was exposed. The biggest thing—it's certainly a big, dramatic kind of thing—that was required to go on. You know, we we have other secrets like that that went on for so many years, and nobody talked. And the Probably key is. Probably
3: because individuals were just doing their little part and they never. Yes, connect, exactly.
0: Right? Bingo. Compartmentalization. Everybody knows their little piece. They don't know what everybody else is doing. They don't always know the significance. Only a very, very small number of people need to know what's going on. And that is standard fare in our intelligence circles on how they manage. Very very big operations to you know, go on like this. Yeah.
1: Uh, uh, to to just riff on that a little bit. A great example is this most recent killing of Osama bin Laden. Uh, yeah. Maybe wink wink nudge nudge. Um, sure. And it it came out. It, you know, one of the things that they floated was this picture of all of the people uh, involved: generals, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, President Obama. I, I can't remember, but it was a room of about maybe 15 to 20 people all sitting there. Um, and this says is, this is what they were doing, looking at the looking at the you know the head cams of the Navy SEALs running around the building trying to find him. And I said, it, and it looked authentic and and everything's going on. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, gosh, if this is true, maybe they really did get him. Well, it came out a couple of weeks later that that photo. Uh, not only was it doctored, but it was actually had been taken 25 minutes before while they were waiting for the upload feed right. of the, right. of the ha- things came up. And the, and the cameras actually, then it came out weeks later that the cameras actually went down.
0: So that this, there was no possible way for them to actually see that. while well, they were in there, no body. And, and the thing is, somebody might say, well, all this is just a coincidence. If you study history, you begin to anticipate it. You, you, right. you not only are shocked when you see these things happen. You sort of set your watch. I'll give you a case in point. We when when the public starts to really get weary of of our wars that were happening, and and what happened as a result of our of of the 911 event, the same things that happened in Germany after the Reichstag fire and after every one of these events. We have an emergency. We have a a population gets in a panic, and they're willing to do whatever the government tells them to do. They're willing to suspend any rights via the Patriot Act, wiretap our phones. There's no requirement to get a judge to approve any of this. In turn, anybody for whatever reason without any kind of court or trial. Just keep me safe. And so do whatever you need to do. How much money do you need to go send, to go buy bombs and to give to defense contractors? There's no question, about All it. Of it. You've got to keep us <laughs> safe. Just here's the checkbook. Just write whatever it is. Just don't let that happen to me again. And so you have a situation like we covered, um, you know, some time ago on, in Future Quake on CBS News, where you find out CBS News is reporting that the dreaded Taliban, the guys we cannot find over in Afghanistan to try to get rid of, that there is an office in downtown Kabul where the Taliban has an office right there anybody can stroll into, and our defense contractors actually go in, take our taxpayer money, and they go give them their cut to the Taliban not to go attack the convoys. So they have a nice little system set up where the Taliban gets their cut, the contractor gets their cut, everybody in the system gets it, and everybody's happy and If interest wanes or people think the war's not that bad, all they got to do is step up the attacks again, and the money increases and flows and Then, when you look in history, you find out that every one of these battles were done the same exact
2: way mm-hmm. well and if if I could jump in um as far as Getting people to be involved in 9/11, even as far as the conscious people, it's only necessary to find people who believe that the ends justify the means, right. because you these are, the people inside the system are the most brainwashed people out there. They were told that the you know the threat is real. We have to let. Uh, you know, one attack happens so that we can stop all the rest of them, you know, the, the American people aren't awake, they're not, they don't know what a threat this is, aren't you willing to go through and and sacrifice a few pawns in order f- to, to keep America as a whole safe, and this is the you know, this is the reasoning that's used, if you believe the ends justify the means, you can come up with justification for anything, and, but there was one guy, he lived a couple thousand years ago, and he came up and he said something that if if uh, Christians actually applied it would eliminate the effectiveness of false flag terrorism. And he he said uh, that we're supposed to turn the other cheek. And so mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't feel justified in reacting violently when you're attacked, um, false flag terrorism doesn't work. Even it takes if you're the motive, just, yeah, it takes all the motive out it, of it. If, even if you are deceived as to what happened if you don't react to it because these things only work because of the reaction it's about getting the reaction of supporting endless wars for you know the best enemies that money can buy and so if you don't have that reaction and even more outrageous if you actually say you know what i'm a christian i'm i'm not going to support war period then um again You're no longer you cannot be manipulated into uh, this deception and into supporting this empire, basically. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, this
3: this brings me to maybe a second reason why it's so difficult to accept this particular piece of the book, this particular idea that 9/11 and other things are deceptions, because the natural consequence of what you've said, if I believe it, it calls into question the very foundation of our nation, the American Revolution itself. Then would likely have been founded on some unlikely things. And maybe, you know, if I had been a Christian living in that era and with a healthy Christian worldview, I wouldn't have been a patriot. And the people that are portrayed as great Christian patriots that helped the revolution happen and helped found our nation, maybe our whole nation is founded on sand, so to speak.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I th- I think, you know, if Chris Pinto's done a, a lot mm-hmm. of, research into that exact area and kind of what you find i I think it's uh is that there was a genuine christian culture i think much more genuine than than what it is now um especially kind of pre-colonial america but at the same time in the leadership positions you find these guys like benjamin franklin who are part of the hellfire club you know you, sure, you can find quotes that make him sound like a Christian and what have you, but They're totally he, he depraved
0: was, Antichrist figures. Thomas Paine and these
2: others that deny this kind of stuff, but
0: they've been reinvented by our media machine, including our Christian pulpits.
2: Right. And, and it's, it's reinvented uh not because it helps those guys out, um, but because it helps out the narrative that America is a Christian nation. Uh, You know, obey your leaders. We've um, and it's again, and one great I think it's a genius idea that Chris Pinto had is you can pull Hillary Clinton quotes and Barack Obama quotes and take it out of context a hundred years from now, it'll make make them sound like die hard Christians, but very few Christians today would would buy that, so it's um you know, it, it's showing that yes, just because you can find some quotes where people talk about God and what have you, it does not mean that they were uh, genuine Christ followers. But but
0: Chuck, or, uh, excuse me, who am I talking to here? Uh, uh, <laughs> Andrew. And, uh, well, Andrew. Yeah, sorry, Andrew. I was going to make this point, Andrew, and to Thomas too, um, that this question that Thomas raises is the right question to ask. What you're saying. Thomas, is a logical question. If this is true, this is the ramification. I have to go back and re-look at these things and try as objectively as possible and not get my own passions, my own biases, my own wannabes into these kind of decisions if I am going to pursue truth and we know so that Jesus wants us to pursue truth because he's the way the truth and the life.
1: Can I can I throw in just real quick on how I've sort of answered this question for myself? And this is I mean this is just for me. Yeah. But at the end of the day I've come to find out that the only kingdom I'm willing to willing to fight for is Jesus's kingdom. You mm-hmm. know, the only one that I'm the only one that I'm serving is that one and everything else is secondary.
0: Mm-hmm. To well,
3: that. this is why this book is so upsetting um and and it's hard to to know how much of it to believe, because if I start to believe one thing, I have to believe the logical consequences, like what we're just talking about. Yeah. And we started our conversation by saying, what is the purpose, uh, what did Andrew? What was his purpose for writing the book, and then we talked about what's the purpose of, of cultivating an accurate and a good, sound worldview. And uh, this is where the rubber meets the road, because one of the answers I think Dr. Future maybe postulated that... We have to have a good Christian worldview because it affects how we live and how we act and what we believe and how we teach our children, and you went down a long list of things. And um, So here we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, and I know churches, among other things and other institutions, will be having um, memorial kinds of events where we look back and remember, and Christians across the nation will be asked to take part in certain things, and um, that's where the rubber meets the road. I'm wondering... To what extent should I take part in these activities?
1: Is anybody going to get saved, Adam? Not that's, likely. Yeah. That's kind of
0: been my feeling of late. Maybe I'm getting yeah. too hardcore about stuff. But How, how many more you know. people will actually be pricked in the heart to say, I need to reach out and share the gospel to Muslims in my community based upon reliving this? How, how much will that probably be talked about in these services?
3: Well, just to play the debunker here, I guess the answer that would be given <clears throat> from folks sponsoring these kind of events would be to say God is glorified when we look with thanksgiving on what he's done for our nation historically and how he's protected us and how he's put us here, you know, and, and it's conveyed that way.
0: Well, I would suggest, and this is not only for you, Thomas, but for our other listeners, if you have not heard the show in our archives from a gentleman by the name of Elliot Nash talking about the parable of the sycamore tree out of Isaiah 9, I would suggest they listen to that show. And in fact, you might even be able to find the documentary on YouTube about it. Because he talks about the uncanny parallels to what happened to Israel after they had an attack uh, from a a, a northern neighbor that sort of shook them in a, a regional attack. And God was testing them in this attack to see if they would repent and to give up their arrogant rebellion. And what happened was, they said, you knock down our towers, we're going to rebuild our towers.
1: The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild them with hewn stones. And and that was, interestingly, that was, Israel is saying that in mocking arrogance to God, who's trying to correct them by letting... By letting uh, Syrians and Philistines sort of raised
0: the northern part in a there. limited, in a limited, in limited sense. Yeah, God was sending them a message. And so, would
3: you be suggesting that something like a hurricane Irene might be a similar event?
0: Yeah, you, you, you know, I, I don't know if you can go in every case, you know, to that because what's funny is, is that people will take that lens to be able to justify yeah, pretty, what pretty they soon think you're the back to what we were is. talking
1: about earlier: the devils in every little thing.
0: In fact, they may say, you know, that hurricane means we need to kill more yeah. Muslims or, the, or whatever like that, the, because that's some of the arguments that are made. So that's the care we have to make. But it, we're just introducing this. I suggested that the people actually watch the whole event. If I, uh, if, yeah, if I,
1: if I may, just to just to sort of finish it up. The key, the key thing in in uh, Elliot's uh, Elliot's argument is that that exact phrase was was read on the floor of Congress uh, by I think the guy the guy from here. What's his name? Uh f- maybe Frist? Bill Frist? Okay. Uh uh, it, it, that exact phrase was read on the floor of Congress as consolation for losing for for the for the the towers being attacked. Right, right, right. That exact phrase, and he's saying, "And we will rebuild," not knowing that that was delivered by the Israel. You know, the Israelis were saying that mockingly in arrogance towards God. And God oh, later yeah. said, "Because of that, you didn't learn the
0: lesson. Yeah. so you're going to get a worse thing." Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the lesson I get from that, uh, Thomas and uh, and Andrew is that any time an event happens in, in, a, in a nation or a people group or community that increases their pride and arrogance, it probably didn't have the desired impact from God. <laughs> right. Because they, usually the, the byproduct of an intervention of God will increase our humility, will increase our repentance and our understanding of our dependence on God, and will cause to reflect on our own personal actions and and that generally has not been the net effect in our nation from these things and it's certainly not been the net effect from the influence of our pulpits for the large part
3: well and it wasn't the net effect in ancient Israel when um, their afflictions began to increase mm-hmm. they didn't usually, well they did initially I guess but toward the end they didn't turn back to God instead mm-hmm. they worshipped Baal and others even more
0: mm-hmm. and God said he turned them over to their delusions And that's what these particular war events, I would submit from my study and from the other gentleman think would agree with me, my study is that's what these are, are delusions. We have the power brokers that be pull the wool over our eyes and God will turn us over to it if we're not willing to humbly learn from them and ask the hard questions. And that's why we cannot let them form the debate of the questions that are asked as a result.
2: Andrew? Yeah, Yeah, I think... And I think, at the same time, even if you uh, accept the idea that Muslims are the enemy, which I think there's all sorts of arguments against that, well, what are we supposed to do to our enemies? We're supposed to love them. Mm -hmm. um, And there are people that are following a false religion, and they need the gospel. They need Jesus. So regardless of even accepting the official story of 9-11, which I don't, uh, war was not the right response. It is not the, the Christian response. It's the response of a pagan nation, which is what America is. But as Christians, we shouldn't be a part of that. We shouldn't support it. And we certainly shouldn't support it in church, which it, uh, often is the case with the The basic worship of the military and and what have you.
1: Marines rappelling down the back of the...
0: Yeah, in the (laughs) sanctuary like they do here. Uh, Yeah. You you know, I don't don't remember, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong. I do not remember any major American Christian church leaders um, that said, when this happened, I'm on one. Let's talk to members of the Islamic community, particularly international with an olive branch of peace, asking what we are doing wrong to cause this, and what can we do to make a situation right.
2: Well, isn't that what Mike Huckabee said, or, or I guess no, he said he wanted to lead them to the them gates they, of hell. Lead them to the gates of hell. Yeah, that so that was the Baptist minister Mike Huckabee that said he. That's pretty much the same thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he no. wanted
0: to lead the Iranians to the gates of hell. So. And. The only person that ever approached him, I believe, that was during one of the Republican debates. And I think Ron Paul had said, we had better make sure that these threats that we had heard are legitimate before we go attack. And he was sort of booed off the stage. In fact, he's the one that gets zero from the Faith Faith Voters, Value Voters Summit. But as it turned out, we found out it was a hoax that was going on in the Persian Gulf at the time. But uh, it was an excuse. And that's what's the status of our nation. We look for an excuse to try to attack someone right now. And the church, the evangelical church, serves as a proxy to be able to send that message out through their pulpits. Uh, and and to put a little bit of uh, Bible verses to sort of wrap around them and get that message. And having a correct worldview means we have to say, whose bidding are we doing? Are we doing God's bidding when we do that, or are we doing somebody else's?
3: Good. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I guess my next question has to do with um, our spiritual sensitivities in the in the U.S. and I think we've been kind of talking around this issue throughout our conversation. But I guess I would ask Andrew, how would you or how would you portray the the American standard uh, average American on the street in terms of his or her spiritual sensitivity? I'm thinking that uh, there's other nations in the world and there's other religions in the world that are significantly more Sensitive to the spiritual world around them than we are.
2: Well, I think that's that's correct, and unfortunately, because there's um, you know in, in the American church, and, and I grew up in a, in a Baptist church, um, you know, pretty conservative, excellent, you know, Bible teaching and what have you, but but very, I wouldn't call it um, a super, you know, spiritually aware community of people. Um, and when, you've got that, unfortunately, people that grow up in that environment, sometimes they go looking for spiritual experiences elsewhere. And I think that explains Mm -hmm. the growth of the new age and what have you. It's people looking like, like, Hey, yeah, it was scary and whatever, but, and I was on drugs and whatever, but it was a spiritual experience. So it must be good. And it's, it's people starving for something, uh, any type of spirituality and and obviously the the true spirituality comes from uh worshiping the true God, and I think you know I think our our blindness to that is a a huge impediment to it, but at the same time i I think god is is faithful to at least on an individual level to to break through that I think we all have whether it's a, a crisis point in our lives or you know maybe just the camping trip or something where you're you're kind of out there alone with with time to think and and god gets a hold of you um you know god is still interacting in a very real way with his people but as a kind of corporate body i think um you know it either gets counterfeited or um it's just not there you know there's kind of the, the two extremes of looking for the experience or just saying well some of that's Fake, so therefore, we we don't want any of that in our church, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I, I, you kind of have two wrongs and and not the 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 true kind of I, I don't want to say middle ground, but the the biblical um, belief that the Holy Spirit is active, He he does move, you, you can experience things, but it's not all about the experience, I guess, is what I'm stumbling yeah. towards trying to say.
3: Okay. Well, so what do we do with um, large organizations? We talked earlier about being decentralized, and so... It certainly seems that there's a place for large, effective Christian organizations that are doing good work on a big scale. Um, But after reading your book, I get a little cynical, maybe not cynical is the right word, but I get a little uh, suspicious when a large organization grows and seems to be doing the Lord's work, wondering what level of corruption and evil may be at work
2: underneath, behind the scenes well the the argument I make in my book, and I definitely stand by it now, is that political power or power over other people you know power to kind of bend people to your will is not something that we are supposed to have, so it's not the model that uh Jesus showed through the you know talking about the kingdom of heaven and showing it by the way he lived out his life. he did not force anyone to do anything. He didn't form big organizations. And yet he, like no one else in human history, literally changed the world, you know, chased for, and no one can deny that. And so he kind of, you know, he broke all the rules. But instead of following his example, we tend to follow the world's example of the pyramid structure uh, you know, you gotta have the CEO or, you know, the pastor as the CEO and, and elders as the board of directors and what have you. And this is, this is the world system and it's regardless of the motivation of the people involved, you're trying to use a structure that is, um, inherently corruptible. You know, the pyramid structure is very corruptible because Satan only has to target the top and it filters down throughout, um. And you're, you're expecting to, to spread the kingdom of God, which Jesus patterned in just the opposite way. So that leaves us, uh, I guess, leaves me with a question about what
3: should I do, getting back to this thing about practice, Christian practice. I've been, uh, for a time, I served on a board of a Christian school, and it was obviously had influence over several dozens of, of children. How would you propose that a Christian organization like that, that wants to be free from corruption and wants to do the good work of the kingdom, how should it organize?
2: Well, I, th- I think it would be, first of all, with a, a Christian school, which I, I think Christian schools can be a great thing, um, you are definitely got a lot better chance of having it be a good thing than a public school. Um, I think the more... You know, Christian schools can pattern themselves on the Bible and less on like, oh, let's, uh, basically teach public school material, but we'll, uh, throw in some stuff about creation and, and call it good. I think that's, you know, unfortunately, lots of Christian schools go down that route because they're trying to live up to, to state standards or what have you. But anyway, to, to get back to the, your question, um, like Dr. Future was saying I would say decentralization and also servant leader servant and very um open and honest leadership so it's not a matter of I'm going to enforce my will on this organization but um you know people who are are genuine and who are open about the the process that, that's happening so I would say you know total um you know, anyone who's sending their kid there can have full information on the finances of the school, or on, you know, any any sort of information, you know, curriculum, what have you. And the decision-making processes, the more out in the open and exposed, I think, the less mm-hmm. likely you are to have kind of a, a corrupt s- someone who comes in there with, you know, on a power trip and, and trying to run things, being able to mm-hmm. to bend things to the way they want it.
0: Can I make a quick comment here on this? Um, uh, Thomas, I had the same experience, and but this has taken me longer than you to get there. I'm sort of slow. But as I've seen and studied more of this from doing our radio show, I've come to see the major vulnerability of big centralized systems, period, and the church is not immune from them. Right. And, and I'll give you a couple cases, and these are sort of painful to mention, And I'll let our listeners, if they doubt it, you can do your own research on this. But there are a couple organizations that have had sterling reputations in the Christian community, like Focus on the Family, Family Research Council, have done some really good things. Uh, But, you know, they get some of their major funding from groups like Eric Prince, the guy that runs Blackwater, the mercenary group that has been accused in federal court of running child prostitution rings and a bunch of terrible, terrible things. It's not like I that I think they normally say, hey, we want to support that kind of activity. The problem is when things get so big and unwieldy, it provides opportunity for unsavory kind of groups like this to work their way in. And there was a book that was written, I think it was called The Secret Team. I'll have to go look it up. But the author was Colonel Fletcher Prouty. Uh, we had a show from a gentleman, Len Sanic, on Future Quake, who was sort of an assistant to him that talked about Colonel Prouty's findings. Colonel Prouty was a guy who was in the upper sphere of several of our presidents and top leaders and was actually the one that would fly them to the big uh, conferences, international conferences, and, and could eavesdrop and hear a lot of what was going on. And what he discovered was that to control world activities and major institutions like the United States, All you really had to do was to put your people in position that were the people that briefed the president and decision makers and Mm -hmm. provided the briefings that formed their own worldview. So in other words, their own understanding of reality, you could control through the information they were presented. And he showed actual names of people who were the ones that were put in position that answered to a different organizational chart. That actually were in a position of just leading the leaders. And so when they would go look at a war zone, they would direct where they wanted to see it and where not. And in fact, in the news recently, we found out a whistleblower high level in our military that said he was told to personally mislead uh, uh, Senator McCain uh, and actually misdirect what was going on in the battlefield and he got in trouble, big trouble with the military, and he was like a lieutenant colonel that came forward and was shown this. And this, this is an old thing. What, what is it? It's all about defining realities. And I think for some of these people who have been legendary in Christian circles, when their groups get so big, they begin to be manipulated by others them that control the reality. For example, I have a hard time understanding what Dr. Dobson would have on a guy like uh, uh, General Jerry Boykin who's a guy who teaches, he was, he was originally in Delta Force, and says that just like the military doctrines were not good enough for Delta Force, he, he has said that the church has to get rid of their doctrines to go fight Muslims and that we have to train young people to go out with a Bible in one hand and a gun in the other. He makes statements like this all the time in churches, but yet guys like him are venerated with our major ministries. Why in the world would they not vet these people? What is dysfunctional about our system where these kind of things can't come forward? Well, big groups get to be very unwieldy. Um, you find all sorts of weird things going on on a financial end and things. And it may be somewhat unavoidable for these type of things that we're vulnerable. But it doesn't have to happen on a national scale. It can happen in a local church. And what happens is it's not always the fault of the leader. A lot of times when we set people up on a pedestal, it can be our local pastor You'll see so many churches that a pastor will fall because the people have set them up sort of as God, and they begin to believe their own PR, they begin to lose their own uh, discretion and their watchfulness, and then they'll succumb to you know, adultery or some other financial management or things like that. So it happens on all these scales, and we shrug our shoulders and say, how could it have happened? It so sounds
3: th- a little bit like Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares, where... Um... The good and the bad were so intertwined with one another that they were impossible to separate in this life, and uh, they had to wait until afterlife.
0: Well, but what we can do to help is if our worldview is correct and we understand, just like uh, Brother Andrew was saying about, you know, we work in an inverted pyramid, the kingdom of heaven, uh, whereas the, the kingdoms of this earth under Satan work under a regular pyramid, when our groups start looking like that pyramid and functioning in that manner, then we should not be shocked when bad things happen. And we can do something to intervene when that nature of servant leadership, even in the structure of groups, begins to not look in that fashion. And when there are people who come up under our leaders in the Christian world that begin to distort the reality of the people at the top about themselves or about their institution or what's going on and begin to pervert it and understand that's how Satan works and begin to recognize it. And maybe like Barney Fife can do, we nip it in the bud uh, when this thing starts to begin, you know. And I think that's something constructive we can get to do based upon recognizing this worldview and recognize that, like the Bible says, Satan goes around roaring like a lion, prowling around. And he prowls around anywhere we can do the most effectiveness, it's in our individual weaknesses in our lives, and the more influence we have, all the better. And we could protect each other better by not putting ourselves, in, you know, and not lifting other people and putting them in these vulnerable positions. And that's why I tell people it's it's wise to put more and more of your energies in your local church, your local activity where the accountability is much stronger, and I think you can see much better things going on.
3: Hmm. So would you offer a suggestion in terms of organizational structure? I uh, hear a lot of churches have boards of elders and pastors and things like that. Are you suggesting that should be organized differently?
1: Well, I think the key is to really recognize, recognize what's been going on here all, uh, the whole time, is that it requires a, it requires, uh, it requires a, a shift in it, both in debate and the way that you frame things in your mind. Uh, in some cases, that's gonna, it, and it's gonna be different for everybody. You know, the first thing is, is, the first idea is obviously, okay, so this is messed up. We need to go and may have a different strategy. You know, how do we, how do we, how do we change the existing structure to be more compelling or more in line? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is, is, well, you know, God's kingdom is sort of different than other kingdoms, so we have to, we have to really work on redefining the bait, debate first. You know, uh, some examples of that would be, you know, most people think of successful churches as having between 500 to 2,000 members. Above 2,000 mm-hmm. members, you know, people start going, well, maybe it's a mega church. Above 5,000 mm-hmm. members, people go, it's definitely a mega church. Mm-hmm. Jesus spent all this time with 12 people, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and but then on the other hand, you have people like, uh, what's that dude down in Alabama, Platt, mm-hmm. David Platt, who's who who sold all of his all of his video stuff to support uh, the it, and, and it provided he sold all of his video gear or maybe all of his audio he sold a large amount of stuff that the church had and gave all of the proceeds to uh, I want to say it was Compassion International which funded their mm-hmm. entire India outreach for a year or a year and a half yeah and and uh, he'll regularly have you know Bible teachings where it's from 6 p.m. to midnight everybody everybody comes with the bible and that's all they do you know there's a there's like two or three 15 minute breaks to use the bathroom and they go over major things you know like mm-hmm. who god is let's look at the book of jeremiah and mm-hmm. regularly they last till they they're supposed to end at midnight but regularly they last till 2 or 3 in the morning mm-hmm. and uh, my point is is that it it's less about it's less about okay so we we can we can all agree that maybe our structure is wrong, you know. Let's change a few let's change a few cogs. Let's let's put in number eight bolts instead of seven bolts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I, I think that that's the the reason we're all yeah. sort of scratching our heads is you because it's new mindset. yeah it's a new mindset. Yeah. It's a new way of driving the vehicle instead of just putting on a new carburetor.
0: Well, I have some other practical suggestions to. Uh, Brother Thomas, um, an institution. What are the kind of things that the Bible says Satan uses for our downfall? The, th- the kind of things are like, you know, lust of the eye, the pride of life, we know mammon, these are all the kind of things. So anytime we set up any of our institutions or our groups of believers that make ourselves vulnerable to that, we're asking for it. So anytime we have a group or institution that focuses on an individual as a front person, there is a vulnerability for the pride of life to be their downfall in a group, and we're not doing them a service by putting them that way. When we have a situation where money is in control of the hands of a few people uh, or set parked in one area, or if we have something where a lot of it goes in our world ministry center with our big Crystal Globe outside and huge facilities and things like that that appeal to the pride of life, all of these kind of things are things the Bible's already warned us. Our vulnerabilities in, in our lives. Why would we not be discerning enough to try to avoid that in the groups we're with? And I'll, I'll expand this not just to church environments to really sort of be aggressive here, uh, Brother Thomas. Why aren't Christians, insightful Christians, saying we, we have resources and money. Why don't we pool our money to provide the money for young couples to buy their homes rather than having to go to banks which are the same groups that work with the International Monetary Fund to subjugate entire nations in Africa and other places. Wow. Ones who have that could be powerful, specific man. Specific plans. <laughs> uh, in fact, I recommend any of our listeners to read Confessions of an Economic Hitman, where, where basically he exposes the system uh, where people like him were used to subjugate entire nations in Africa and elsewhere. Uh, premeditated under a banking system to give up all their natural assets. I mean that is a Babylon system, and when the Bible tells us to get out of Babylon, we first have to recognize it. And, and we're setting on all sorts of assets here as American Christians to, to to have our own alternative to banking systems that honors Christ. We can have our own healthcare system that doesn't have that same kind of approach. So the sky's the limit, Brother Thomas. It's only our imagination and the boldness in which we will serve Christ to set up alternatives to Babylon after we recognize the system.
2: You, you know, Dr. Future, there there's a country that uh, they gave a $50,000 interest-free loan to each newly married couple so they could go out and get a house without uh, then getting swamped in debt. Um, you might have heard of it. It's it's Libya, so we had to go take care of that to make sure that ah. they set up a, a central bank that was uh, debt-based and is is paying their dues to the International Monetary Fund and all the other organizations there.
0: Were they using that dreaded Sharia banking? Is that why, how they got the debt
2: free? Well, the all the, all loans were interest free by law, yeah. so you you couldn't have a loan at interest. You could only have an interest free loan. So. Yeah,
0: see that's the influence of those Arab countries. They need our good Christian Western, uh, you know, financial mindset where we put people under usury. Uh, which is again a hallmark of our culture when it comes in.
2: Yeah, it it is. So that's. So I I don't know if if uh, you want to hear the government talking about that whole you know, buying houses for young couples and sort of things. You you might get the, you might get a, a love bomb dropped on Nashville there. <laughs> well, I'm you know I'm talking about the body of Christ.
0: You know, yeah, the body of Christ doing this and doing it God's way, once we recognize the Babylon system that we give our obeisance to, it touches every one of our lives. And the question is, how bold are we going to be in following Christ? How much are we going to, as individuals in our own families, and how are we going to be collectively with fellow kindred spirits in the body to say, even in a little small area, we're going to actually provide an alternative. That would be the kind of way if Jesus were here, he would run our institutions rather than, than again, paying our obeisance to it.
2: Yep, absolutely.
0: Thomas?
3: Okay, yeah, I'm, uh, I've am i kind of exhausted my list of questions at this point.
0: Well, that's good because we're right at about the two-hour point uh, of our interview time here. Um, is there anything like, la- by the way, um, one of the things I was thinking you might ask about that I thought was a great observation uh you made Thomas, because I know that you've you spent a good bit of time living internationally, which is something that, you know, the average American does not do. We yeah. live in total ignorance for the most part. We can't. E- we don't even know where the continents are. I wouldn't go over there,
1: man. Those people are evil.
0: Well, I know. They're, it's, they're, they don't they eat have babies, a, and they work twenty
1: hours a day in a sickle
0: factory trying to. They're not as exceptional take the as USA America. Down. You yeah. know, because we're, we're exceptional. But it's
1: all equal at the foot of the cross, but it's a little more equal for <laughs> us in the. The American bent.
0: Sorry for that cynicism break there, uh, Brother Thomas. It's it's significant Uh, over here. But the thing is, you have a benefit that most Christians don't have, is a little bit of awareness of stepping out. You stepped out of the culture, the paradigm that we are in here in America, and you got into some different ones. And you saw government as being two different extremes. And I just want to – we're about done here. But I thought you made a clear point, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, Brother Thomas. You said that when you were in, in one, more of, more of a third world kind of country, you found they had a really high skeptical nature of government. They yeah. really didn't trust them for doing anything at all really reputable. Basically, they just had to be managed. They, they didn't put any innate virtue to government. They just figured the best you can be to out-connive the government, to tolerate them and to work around the system, so be it. So they had a you know a, a, a very low opinion that they just managed, whereas you were in a European environment where they almost elevated government to the status of godhood, where it really was the bastion of virtue in terms of the virtuous activities that would happen in society would be through the government institution, and they were willing to provide whatever resources the government has to be able to accomplish it. And I think that's interesting to find that you were exposed to two extremes. And then the question comes to us, what would God have us do?
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think I would just add to that, in the in the developing country that I was in, there was a sense that uh, the government is corrupt. Everybody knows that. There's no question about it. It's just something we've got to live with. We've got to deal with it. Uh, however, those with money have a little bit better ways of getting around the governmental roadblocks that are there. And those without money just have to tolerate it because they, that's their lot in life. So I'm certainly thankful that I don't live in that sort of a, mm-hmm. of a situation. But I think what we've talked about here tonight is clearly mm-hmm. that we should be careful before we idolize our own government because it may have a lot of things behind the scenes
2: that are not as good as they appear.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Andrew, do you have any comment on that?
2: Well, I would... I would say we're heading that direction. Um, I think that's where that's where all this corruption leads is to you know a third world police state dictatorship. And if you um, you know you can only let corruption go to a certain point before it totally takes over and society does break down. You know once people stop trusting, once shop owners start stop trusting you to come in, pick stuff up, and then pay for it before you leave, um, you know, it, you can't even carry out of the basics of an economy. So it's, uh, you know, the kind of the old school American Protestant values. Um, if you don't have that, if you don't have honesty and what have you, a uh, country will break down, and it's not because of any necessary it's not necessarily because of any special judgment of God. It's a natural consequence of the corruption and of the sin mm-hmm. and what have you. So I, I think, you know, that, that is where we're headed. We've got, uh, you know, SWAT teams raining, raiding Amish people for selling raw milk. Uh, you know, you've got people getting threatened with jail time for growing tomatoes in their front yard, just all, all this different stuff where it's, um, laws upon laws upon laws and it's getting to the point where it's almost impossible to obey the law and therefore by necessity it will be selectively enforced so it'll be the people that are on uh, in good with the ruling elite that don't get touched by the law and the the people that aren't that get the book thrown at them and you see that with Wall Street you know um, there's a, a kid, and it was kind of a misleading story because the, the the kid was, was found guilty of assaulting an old man and, and robbing him of seven cents. And the, they convicted him as a felon because he wouldn't confess the crime. So I don't know if he actually committed the crime, but... For the sake of argument, let's say he did. So this kid robbed seven cents and is a felon for life. But you can you can work for Goldman Sachs, rob fifty billion, and you have to pay a five hundred million dollar fine, and you can go about your merry way. And no one's talking about throwing these people um, in jail. So I, I think it is kind of the in unfair system. It's a corrupt system. And the fruit of that is a society that, that breaks down and totally unravels. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I would just add a quick comment. I know we're getting late here. But out of those two systems that you described, Thomas, that you uh, encountered, I would personally say that, that the uh, emerging nation scenario was actually a more realistic observation. They may both be extreme but I think they're more realistic, and in, in the example I give is that we may look down on that nation because of the corruption and the bribes and whatever and be glad that we live in America, but how are our politicians any different when they make their votes based upon the bribes that are paid through lobbyists that actually go and actually elect our elected officials and provide the money to re-elect them in office, and they basically do the bidding of the, the special interest groups and the others it's really no different in terms of the form of bribing except uh you know, other local officials have the in, in in the country that you're you're referring to, you have the ability at least to move a sheriff or somebody else a jailer, you know, with a with a twenty dollar bill. Whereas you can't get anything done here in the corruption system unless you've got twenty million dollars uh in this system. And and the scary thing I see about the other example where, where you have a government seen as the bastion of virtue, and you've basically turned over all of the social responsibility of society over to that government, is that I think they live in a false world. And what they've done is, in totally counter to this whole decentralization concept of recognizing fallen men, they've taken a small number of people and given them the authority over every area of our life. And so now you have countries like Germany which is, you know, a very, very civilized, advanced state, high quality of life that passes laws that says that if you homeschool your children, we have the authority to come take your children and institutionalize them. Uh, we look on the outside and see it's a very sophisticated uh, society with a great welfare safety net. But then you have the dark side that people don't look at or the fact Uh, that the European Union has said that if you teach creationism, you are declared by, by their legislation already, an enemy of the state. (laughs) So, we, we tend to look on the, on the outside appearance and see that, you know, you maybe don't see as many poor people on the streets. You see the streets are pretty clean. They have nice trains and things like this. But where's the real totalitarianism? in these kind of environments it's like it's a gilded cage so to speak or totalitarianism with a with a smiley face on the outside of it and so yeah. i think as we look go back to look at a biblical model we we see god says that all nations gentile nations and and we have to be compare, careful in comparing to israel because israel was a one time only intentional theocracy because they were a covenant people everyone in that nation was under a unique covenant at the foot of Sinai and their children, and to stay in that community in that country, you had to be privy to that covenant. So we had to be careful in the comparison. But in his commands to the other Gentile nations, what does he ask for civil government? Really, no more than making sure that there are honest weights and measures, uh, that there are honest courts, and that it doesn't exploit, you know, the widow and the orphan or the people who are easily defenseless, and exploited in society. That's the best you can expect out of civil government. And any more of that, if you give any kind of moral crusade, even by well-meaning Christians today, when you give them that mandate to be the moral interface of the sins we do against God, we have taken that role away from the church. And no one can serve two masters. And when it comes to sins against God, I would rather interface directly with God because he can be much more merciful to me than the state can. Uh, if if there are moral sins, I would rather deal directly with God rather than have some well-meaning law in the books, where because I have a different biblical view of how to have a certain area of purity or other factor, that that the state gets to be able to mete out the justice on that rather than me dealing personally with God. So all of these things are factors. And I guess as we wrap up here, uh, I, I I think what it, I guess the the motto that I get out of all this is that. Those of us who've been raised in the church have have, have swallowed so much, you know. The term Kool Aid is used, but so much Americanism, so much of our patriotism, uh, the kind of stuff that Walt Disney, I think Robert Hyde calls it, the Disneyfication of America. We've <laughs> we've had so much of an idealized view of right and wrong, and and who we are, and how the church is supposed to function, and the positions they have in society. And we go back and look at the Bible. And if we try to divorce ourselves from it, it looks foreign to us. And so we really need to challenge each other to go back to a worldview that's based totally and completely on the Bible. And to hold each other accountable to do everything we can in our power, trying to deprogram ourselves. you know, And then reprogram ourselves. And that, that's that's a hard thing to do. Uh, yeah. Thomas, do you have any other comments you want to have here uh, as we sort of round third here and head to home?
3: No, I think I think I don't. You've answered uh, the questions very well between the conversation with all of us, and I wanted to thank Andrew for his comments too, and for a book it's worth reading and worth challenging your worldview with. But I've I've had my questions answered, so thank you.
0: Well, Thomas, what do you feel like uh, is the outcome of this for this investment of time you've made with us here? Uh, Have you felt the Lord saying anything to you?
3: Well, I think it just comes back to the the core tenets of the gospel, which is it's all about Jesus. I mean, we've got to consider that all of us are sinful. We are prone to corruption. We're prone to deception. Uh, those who are not redeemed are even prone that much more. And uh, if we're not consumed with and focused on and obsessed with Jesus, then we're going to be off kilter in one way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm
0: anybody um, want to you want to dispute that andrew uh no, you want to dispute the jesus emphasis
2: no i i think that's that's the exact same uh conclusion that i reached you know through this winding path of of investigating all this different uh you know alternative news conspiracy stuff however you want to, to phrase it was man that you you can really trust the bible um jesus actually knew what he was talking about and um, that's and that's kind of the uh, I guess heresy check or false belief check. Um, if it leads you away from Christ, it's a bad thing. And if it leads you to focus more on Christ, it's probably a good thing. So that's kind of my my rule of thumb that I I try to go by. I like that.
0: Well, I would say too, if you go down this path of trying to. Rebuild from scratch a worldview based solely on the Bible. You want having what, coworkers talk to the CEO about yeah, weird stuff. And, yeah, yeah. You know. But you're going to get your most of your criticism is going to come from your fellow Christians. Yeah, they're going to throw rocks at you like friends.
1: like you, they thought you were a sinner and call you all sorts of names. say stuff behind your back to other people. Uh, I, I could go on, but it might yeah. get too personal.
0: But this this, this creates a real crisis in you when you start feeling an alienation, but then yet you'll feel a connection with other people that you're surprised to find. And that's, you know, talk about technology, Thomas. That's one thing I'm happy for with the Internet is because now we can find kindred spirits. They just sometimes happen to be on the other side of the world. Right. But we, we yeah. have a way to connect and find them, Christians who are sort of being led down the same path, asking the same questions, and that's why forums like Future Quake and a lot of the Revelations radio shows, and now mm-hmm. we've got Future Quake South Africa and things, mm-hmm. where, where people are asking the same things, and we can iron sharp and iron, like our, our friend Longshoreman Johnny says. Uh, we, we can start doing that together. So yeah. I want to thank you so much for joining us, and I hope something constructive came out of this. I hope, does everybody here feel like something we win if it we're rejected
1: out. because of his name, and we win if we get to watch seeds planted and grow and all of that stuff. And all of that stuff is going to happen if you take this stuff that's been, like, sort of encapsulated tonight and really think about it, put it in your head, and, and, and go out and try and do it and, and live it out the, whatever way that you see it. Because mm-hmm. you're closer to the truth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Maybe that was a good Well, I'm just uh, fired up now.
0: If we don't have any comments right now, I'd like to bring in somebody else, a fifth partner, Merv. who will come and tell our listeners how to contact us the at Future Quake. Head. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Doctor Future and Tom Bionic at Doctor Future at futurequake.com. That's
3: D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us
0: your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, but well we're wrapping up things here. I want to thank you gentlemen so much for joining us. The book is called The New World Order and Eugenics Wars, A Christian Perspective by Andrew Hoffman. Uh, well, there'll be a link for this show at futurequake.com. Uh, also, you can go to eugenicswars.com. That's eugenicswars.com. And uh, get the book as well. And we have the two books set at the front of futurequake.com with Judge Andrew Pollock's book, uh, Lies the Government Told You. Uh, be sure and get that book. I, I found it to be brilliant. I think it was really inspired in the very eloquent and concise way you put a, a ton of truth per page. In this book, brother Andrew, I want to thank you so much for taking time to be with us.
2: Well, thanks so much uh, to you and and Tom, and also um, to, to Thomas for com- coming on and and asking great questions. I think um, you know he he did a great job of of drawing some more things out, maybe that I. Missed or, or I have a tendency to kind of gloss over or be too glib with. So I, I thought that was great. And thanks also to the Futurians out there. I have to say that, uh, you know, from the people that, that have the book out there, you probably heard about it on Future Quake. So I'm thankful to, to the show and, and for all the, the great feedback and the comments, uh, from Futurians on, that I get on Facebook and what have you. So thanks a lot. And, uh, thanks for having me on the show again. I appreciate it.
0: Well, and I have one last charge for Thomas. Um, okay. Thomas, I don't know if the two other guys agree with me here, but based upon your performance here, your first time out of the bat, I think the world is is um, deprived a lot by not having you do your own podcast on these topics. Wow. I think uh, this is something That's you need to be high thinking about. I coming from FutureQuake. Well, <laughs> we, we need you. We need you in our community. We need your questioning thoughts. Uh, we need somebody who's looking for the right questions and then just roll over and accept whatever they hear and someone that that was truly sold out to Jesus and wants to do exactly what uh he would think Jesus would want him to do. So I'm going to leave you with that thought that uh, there is room in there Andrew. Absolutely.
2: For yep. people like That's, we uh we've got the kind of quirky um unusual people cover we need we need some some kind of uh, trustworthy mainstream Americans in there. Well, you'll find out. I don't
3: know if that's a compliment or not, but uh, thank you for thank <laughs> you for letting me air my opinions and and answer them so so thoroughly and articulately.
0: Well, the better you get to know Thomas, you'll find out his his mainstreamness has distinct limits. Uh, <laughs> and uh, if you think we're goofy on uh, future quake, I'd like to see Thomas get his own show because uh, I know this guy well enough to know that he. He enjoys good humor and the Spirit of the Lord. So, uh, Thomas, be thinking about that, okay?
3: Okay, and I hope that on the next time you can come and pick me up in that Future Quake jet and uh, mm-hmm. take me to your studios.
0: Yeah, that's what all the giving from all the Futurians went into that. the Future Quake jet. We use their faith pledges. Did you get in that right, Tom?
1: I don't think we've ever yet had a faith pledge. <laughs> yeah, we've had get people tenfold. donate, but I don't know
0: what on earth a faith pledge. Well, they get tenfold in this world if they donate. <laughs> you haven't heard about that? Man, I, I like I. You know what? I let me. I'm going to rant
1: here for a second.
0: Okay, well we're coming to the end here, but just I, well, a quick Well, no, rant we're not. I mean, closure. it's not like
1: it's got to fit into a radio format. Yeah, well, we have. We'll get some call here. There, quick. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> give know, us
0: a quick rant before we close.
1: Okay. The whole thing about that is. I, you know, I used to get real angry about it, and now I pray for those guys doing it. Yeah. Because what's going to happen is he's, they're going to get to heaven, and God's going to be like, "I am so, so, so angry at you." Yeah. You don't understand how mad I am at you guys. Yeah. You know, and they're going to be like, he's going to be like, "What do you mean?" And he's going to hit the trapdoor button. And well, they're probably going to get it. some
0: flash burns from my wood hay and stubble when it goes through. Oh, I doubt that. That'll, man. that'll get some. Flash Bro, you're, you're
1: you're you're on email eight hours a day, responding to people, and you know it gets to be overwhelming. And, to, and you're still trying to do it. It's like wading through a garbage bin. Trying to you fix know, it's what just we talk. So much stuff, and it's Try, like, trying you know. to fix
0: what we talk here on a quake. We got to go, uh, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for cheering. Uh Please come back next week for another interesting discussion. Unfortunately, you'll still be stuck with Tom and I. But until then we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake.